Oh, so I had a little idea. Um, and we don't have to do this for this one, but what if what if we did like a cold open because it's kind of like we usually will start talking and then it's like okay now we're gonna start the podcast. Tim, that is the greatest. You just blew my brain. That that's amazing. <laughs> like what we're like, doing right now is like this. the cold ar- yeah. open, but like, right. dude, that is so brilliant and so simple. I cannot believe no, I've never seen anybody do it. everybody to another episode of the motor mouth podcast where a lot of great ideas go absolutely nowhere my name is joel tyree and with me as always is my co-host the tim gerard oh. hi tim <laughs> hi joel <laughs> like we haven't been talking for 25 45 minutes before good to, good to see you <laughs> yes in this format <laughs> All right, so as this is a dry run of our two topics enter sanity leaves format, who's going to bite the bullet and bring their topic first? (laughs) Um, I can go. I have it. I I deliberated over it and I decided. So my my topic is going to be Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, okay. That, all right. I, yeah. I'm I'm down. I can do that. See, not Gary. <laughs> I know you finally were watching it, so I'm like, good. We can talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to give some background on like how you came to watch the show and the frequency with which you view it, and then I can do why I've held out so long. <laughs> <laughs> we could do that. We could do that later. Why don't you announce your your topic so we can oh. get them both out there? Oh. I thought we were going to talk until yours was gone and then maybe I didn't have to have one. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. So, so let, let's, let's call this like the placeholder topic. Um, if, if we don't, <laughs> if, if it ends up not holding water, I, w- I was going to want to talk about Van Halen and uh, Ooh, concerts. Okay. Um, I, I know the, the last thing we talked about the last meeting was, don't bring up anything topical because it'll date the podcast. And then I'm like, well, Eddie Van Halen died and I've been thinking about it a lot. So that's my topic, Van Halen. Yeah. Avatar. And I mean, Ang Van Halen. I am, I am down for this combination of Van Avatar. Van Avatar. Oh, did you ever see, and this is great. It's already uh, bringing up weird stuff. Did you, did you watch like Dexter's Lab and Cow and Chicken? Uh, no, I think I tried watching Cow and Chicken because it looked like it was by the same creators as Ren and Stimpy, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't like it as much because I was just like, this isn't Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> okay. And I think it's also like the same, the same kind of interstitials went through Johnny Bravo as well. I think you've seen Johnny Bravo. Yeah, I, I know of Johnny Bravo. Okay. So there, there was this interstitial cartoon, like in one of those shows or all of those shows where it was the 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 super friends but they 
what was it called? It wasn't Super Friends, but it was like referential to that. But it's like these three superheroes like living in an apartment together. And there's a Major Glory, who's like a fuck, he's like Captain America, the Incragable Kronk, which is a Hulk. And then there's Valhalla, who was Thor, <laughs> but also Van Halen. He had this oh, gorgeous nice. hair. You never saw his eyes. And he used to like play this flying V guitar and destroy things with the sound waves. But like their whole thing was like, these are superheroes and they're trying to get through like mundane tasks. Like the light go or the, uh, um, the smoke detector battery goes out and they're like freaking out. It's like little interstitial episodes. They were only like two or three minutes long as you were waiting for the next episode or little mini episode of Dexter's Lab. They, they were fun. I'll have to show it to you. <laughs> yeah, I, that sounds familiar. I feel like like the character names rang a bell, but I can't like picture what they look like. I'm also, I might be confusing Major Glory with, because there was definitely an analog to Captain America in Freakazoid. And Freakazoid had this like weird pantheon of, of crazy villains and uh, uh, superheroes. Like the Huntsman. It was like a clearly supposed to be like if Clint Eastwood was Robin Hood. And he's just really gritty and over the top and he shouldn't be like in this kid's cartoon and it's just way too serious. <laughs> See, we're already we're already wildly be, moving yeah. in different directions. This is exactly I what I wanted this to be. <laughs> you don't need topics. <laughs> so Avatar. Avatar. So, and just to be clear, we're talking about the animated series, not the movie, because it doesn't exist. <laughs> so, little context for the only until very recently, in the last month, the only part of that show or that universe I had seen was the M Night Shyamalan movie. I went to see that. I, I was on vacation with my folks in Canada for a, a family reunion. We've got family up there. And we went to this, like the Edmonton Mall, which is the biggest mall in the world. It's this huge place. And they have this really cool movie theater kind of at the top of the, it's the, the highest floor of it. And they have this mechanical dragon and this arcade and then the, a movie theater. Um, so my dad, we were trying to find something to watch and Avatar was the only thing that was like remotely interesting. And we saw it and it has forever stained my impression of this universe. Yeah, that's fair. I, I actually saw the movie before seeing the animated series too, which, which I was kind of glad for in the end because it's like, okay, you get to kind of bump up and be like, okay, that was, you know, you know, and, and luckily I saw it with two people who loved the show. So they were like, oh my God, this was terrible. Here's all the reasons why the show is better. And gotcha. I think at the time, like, I mean, I knew it was bad, but I wasn't like angry about it the way they were because, you know, they had seen it and kind of, you know, held a special place in their heart as, as the series does for me now, because I've actually seen the series. Um, so were you watching, like, were you chasing Shyamalan at this point? Is that why you went to see it other than, is that what like motivated you to see it? Probably. And probably because I think, like, I think I had heard of the show. Okay. But again, this was this was back. I'm trying to think of around roughly. Well, you know, whatever year it came out. I don't know what year that is, um, and I'm not going to bother to look it up on IMDb. No, we're not. Um, this is whatever, not whatever a fact year, check podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> whatever year it was, definitely before 2011 because it was before I moved out here. So gotcha. we'll just we'll say that at least. So the dark times, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think Netflix was relatively new at that point, and. Like it, it kind of, it was the DVD thing. And it, right. um, it was when they started 
slowly adding streaming. So, you know, it wasn't where you could just be like, oh, here's the show Avatar. Okay, let me go to one of my 10 streaming services and see which one has Avatar so I can watch it. It was, yeah, I heard about this show. It seems kind of cool. And they made a movie about it. Okay, I'll go see the movie. And uh, yeah, and my friends were excited to see it because they loved the show. So I was like, yeah, I'll go with you. I've never seen the show, but I at least want to see the movie. It was, it was really weird, like watching the movie because I think also when I was younger and more naive at that point, I wasn't <clears throat> as much of a, a critic, you know? So it was just kind of like the, the movie was kind of just floating by me. And you almost just kind of like have this, this sense of like, like I, I'm confused right now and I don't know why. Mm. Like, like something wasn't sitting right, but I wasn't like kind of going comb through the dialogue yet and kind of saying like, oh God, this is why this is terrible. It was just kind of like, well, it is based on a cartoon. So maybe that's why the dialogue's so clunky, you know, or maybe that's why these, these characters are really awkward. Like, so, so yeah, then I went out for, for drinks after with my friends. And then that was kind of when they were just kind of like, here's everything that's good about the avatar and here's everything that sucks about this movie. And I was kind of like almost playing devil's advocate at, mm. at the time. I remember, you know, which makes me looking back, I feel like a real shit heel about it. Cause it's just like, why am I defending something when I only kind of saw one side of it? You know, it's like, I didn't know how good the show was at the time. And it was just kind of like, you know, I think I was just trying to be optimistic about the movie. Plus like, I feel like, and this is something I've noticed too, when there's something that you like and other people kind of shit on it, you kind of think you might be kind of stupid. So I was just like, am, am I an idiot? So it's like, I, I felt the need, I think, to stick up for it because I didn't notice how bad it was. I mean, I noticed it wasn't great. Like there were awkward things about it. But because it wasn't obvious how bad it was at the time, I was like, oh, am I, am I stupid for not noticing how, how bad this movie was? maybe I should, yeah, maybe I should kind of stick up for it, you know, as a, as a way of kind of defending my own intelligence, I guess, you know, which, um, you know, that was, that's, that's not what it was about. It's, it's an objectively bad movie, you know, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, so a little ways down the road, um, like I said before, like, you know, streaming was kind of relatively new on Netflix. So it finally kind of got up and running and that's how I first watched it was streaming on Netflix because they had the whole series um, gotcha. And again, I forget exactly what it was. I know, again, it was before I moved to Colorado. So it was, it was before, uh, before fall of 2011. Um, it may have even been over the summer of 2011. Um, but I just remember watching it and just being like, you know, like, holy shit, this was a kid's cartoon. Like, this is, this is amazing. This is, you know, and there were, there were moments, I think a lot of the humor was lost on me because that's when it would really, you were really aware that it was a kid's show, mm -hmm. but it, not enough to kind of ruin it, you know, like, the jokes weren't funny to me, but I wasn't going to, you know, call it a flaw of the show because yeah, it was made for kids. Um, but, but considering that, like how, how deep it got sometimes and how heavy it got. Um, and I remember, I remember at one point, I think maybe this was like when I, when I finished it, I remember, I think writing on Facebook and being like, you know, I just finished the avatar and it is the matrix level good. Like that was, that was the like highest and, praise you know, so that's you can high offer. Praise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I just remember being like, like, holy shit, this isn't just like some fun kids cartoon. Like this is, you know, um, but I hadn't rewatched it until uh, recently when it came back to Netflix. Um, <clears throat> so my wife and I watched it and, you know, luckily we, you know, burned through it pretty quickly. 
um, you know, it was one of those things. I wasn't sure if she was going to like it. I kind of like had to rope her in, like, well, watch this one episode and they're acute animals and they're, they're all these animals are, are hybrids, you know, so we have like this flying lemur and, you know, a sky bison and it's huge and it's, you're going to love it, you know. So luckily she was hooked and we ended up like blowing through all the seasons uh, very quickly. Yeah. So, so that was, and that was, you know, the thing is I, I, I saw, you know, and not like I'm the type of person who, you know, I know um, there are some people who watched it, you know, on Nickelodeon when it aired and it's like an important part of their childhood. So for me, it wasn't necessarily something where it's like, oh God, everyone has to watch this. It's like, I watched it late in the game. I liked it. You know, that was kind of good enough for me. Plus it wasn't on streaming for a while. So I wasn't going to be like, hey, everyone watch Avatar. You have to buy the box set. It's like 30 bucks, you know, which I'm planning on buying at some point. Right. So when I saw that you were watching it, I was like, oh, okay. Like it wasn't necessarily something that, um, you know, I was like, oh, I I guess by this point, I assumed most people had seen it, you know. Um, and, And, you know, this was also after, you know, you were you weren't working in the ID office anymore. So had you been watching it when you were working in the ID office, that would have been something that would have been a topic of conversation like yeah. every day, like, okay, where are you at in Avatar? Like, tell me what Absolutely. you're thinking. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I thought back to it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's something Joel and I will have to talk about at some point. Um, so that was part of why I thought to bring it, like knowing that you had seen it, knowing that it's not something I can bring up and be like, this is a great show, you should watch it. And you'd be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. When I get to it, sure. sounds good. But what's that going to do for us now? I had know? to come to it myself. I had to <laughs> yeah. come to the spiritual enlightenment at the North air temple or whichever one it is that he goes to the, the guru for. Right. I, it was one of those, th- I, I don't want to step. I mean, this is a conversation. I'm just going to talk. Um, <laughs> so it's, it was one of those things where I didn't, I, I must have caught maybe half an episode of some when it was on Nickelodeon. It was I, I might have been just like just aged out where I wasn't watching Nickelodeon at that time. I was watching something mm-hmm. else um, when it was coming out. Um, and it was one of those things where it, it I didn't have a whole lot of friends who were into it. And then through college, it didn't really come up. And it's only been recently where I, I've got friends on Facebook and stuff. And it's just kind of this whenever you see a fandom from the outside with no context, there's kind of a satisfaction in not participating in one. You know what I'm saying? Like this will be the one I hold out on and I don't interact with. And I can feel superior as a result of not doing It's that shitty, like I don't like this really popular movie or this critically acclaimed movie. Because I haven't seen it, and I, I can have this elevated, ignorant position. <laughs> so that that was a lot of it, and it it it's a powerful fandom. I like it. I would liken it to kind of the 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 Harry Potter kind of fervor. Same kind yeah. of fans. Same kind of memeing. Kind of second life through streaming and kind of being able to watch them in your home rather than going to see the movies and kind of an ended too soon, ruined by a film. It's very Star Wars and it's like tumultuous canon conversation. It's like, I have enough drama with the things that I'm already a fan of. It's like just, and that's the thing, like when it was one of those things I kind of was under the radar where people assumed I had seen it and I just would nod along because I didn't want to engage in the, oh my God, you haven't seen it. You need to see it. Um, 
<laughs> I made that mistake with you and Buffy. I keep, I keep in, <laughs> insisting I haven't seen it. You're like, you're, you're an awful person. You need to watch it. You call yourself a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other thing is like, I didn't realize how short a commitment avatar was. Cause it's this huge community and this huge, like huge memeable universe. And it, it, it's only three seasons long. And that, if that had been the first thing, it's like a brisk watch that, that definitely would have gotten me into it, I think, or not. I, I might've just continued to be shitty and elitist about it. Um, <laughs> and it, I always saw it as kind of like a gateway anime. I, 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 it's kind of an outdated notion to kind of like look down and, be skeptical at anime i i just it always seemed like if i get into this that's the last thing i will get into because it will consume my life because there's so much of it and it's so self-referential and it's like this very specific community that's very into it that's this is all me projecting onto it so i i was like i don't really have any interest and then as quarantine has been going on and we've been burning through all of the things we've watched a million times my partner, Tyna, was like, let's give this a shot. I, and I kind of was like, okay. And it was one of those things, like, I kept quiet about it. I wasn't talking about it with you or with all, all our friends where it was like, I was sleeping on it because I didn't want the, the, the shower of memes. I didn't want to be buried under all of the references and have to have the conversation. Where are you, like, it, it was kind of nice to kind of have it off the radar for a while and kind of watch it at our own pace. It, it was once, it was something that I, I was kind of watching just to have something to watch. I wasn't super into it as we started and started to kind of come around gradually into there's, there's like moments where I was like, okay, I, I, I get the thing. I totally get what this is. I get why people like it, but I think it, it took until like mid through the second season or when they get, I think it's bossing say kind of that little microcosm of stories was kind of like, okay, this show can evolve. And I think that's the thing that I like the most about it. It doesn't stay one thing. And it's been interesting now we're on to Korra and we're kind of watching it at the same kind of bite size. We'll watch two or three episodes and kind of get, get some distance from it and come back and kind of remember things. And that's where the, the recaps of the previous episode really start to help. Um, and the, the whole at like airbender Korra conversation is also something we can, we can talk about. So you, you said when they started streaming it is when you would, so did you devour it? Was it something where you were like, okay, I'm watching all of like binging or what do you? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I remember. Like I said, it was, it was, you know, yeah, at least, at least 10 years ago, probably, you know, a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I remember just, you know, being like, wow, like, yeah, and I can, I can watch this whenever I want, you know, and just keep watching it. And yeah, there were probably many late nights where it was like, I should go to bed, but just they're, they're, they're only 22 minutes long, just one more episode, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I, I, I won't say maybe I was done with it in a week. Know, like oh, something damn. along those lines where you know i think I, I was i was watching it by myself so it was like i had to wait for anybody it was just kind of like i'm gonna keep watching this until i have to eat or go to the bathroom or sleep you know and uh yeah i mean it, it is kind of nice when they do give you that kind of like okay here's a, a bunch of episodes that are connected but then here's kind of like a one-off and it's like okay and i think i'd probably try to stop there cause it's like all right i don't want to start a whole three-part story or whatever um the show is really good at those kind of spacer episodes because yeah. they don't, they always feel refreshing. They don't feel like they're, they're just marking time. It, it, it always feels like it, it's come as like a nice breather. 
And like you said, it, that those are good ones to either stop on or stop after because you're, you know, you're going mm-hmm. into something. And it's the thing, whenever we got to like the final, like the finale arc, I was always surprised because they prefaced it so well and they broke it up so well. It was like, oh, we're already at the end of the, the season. That was something I really w- admired about the show is like to have a sh- kid's show to not be formulaic and to understand pacing over the course of it. And it also take, it, it's this prestige storyline. Like it, it's, it's like Breaking Bad in its storytelling. Mm. Like it tells a story through a season and then two seasons and then three, like it combines and it, it doesn't ever feel like it's, it's wasting your time or diverting you in, in a, a direction that doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. And I think that was maybe one of the, yeah, one of the big strengths of it is that like, I feel like they had a plan going into it, you know, like yeah. we're going to have, he has to learn these three elements. We've got a season per element and then he has the final confrontation and then we're done. You know, um, you know, it's not one of those where it's like every season it's like, are we going to get canceled? Okay. We might, let's put all our best material into the season. Oh, we got renewed for another season. Okay. Now we're going to make up some other garbage to, you know, venture to take our characters on, you know? And um, yeah, like that can, can really hurt a show, you know? And that's why, you know, I, I, I know it's probably not possible nowadays because I'm sure lots of studios, if something's make money, they just want you to keep pumping out new material. Um, but I feel like it's probably rare to have a show that can just keep going and keep taking you to new places that actually feel like, you know, there's a progression of the characters are growing, you know, and that, that was one of my, one of my favorite things too, is that I remember watching the beginning like I said before, like a lot of the really childish stuff didn't appeal to me. I was like, whatever, it's for kids. But I feel like there was less of that. Like Aang does grow up and, and everybody grows up, you know, and everybody gets better and everybody learns new things. And I thought that was really great, you know. And um, I think this probably also came to me anyway around that time when um, Lost kind of came out and and, it, and it's good to say this, and I keep pointing at Lost, and I don't know if there were other shows that did this, but like, it, I remember it being a, like a big to-do at the time is that Lost kind of revolutionized how we watch TV. Right. You know, like plenty of other shows before that are just one-off episodes, and maybe there are little things that carry over. Maybe there's some stuff that if you watch them in order, you see things happening. But most shows, like, you know, perfect example, Law and Order, you could just drop into any one of those shows, right. start, finish, done. Like, that's it. It doesn't matter what order it's in. I think that's why a lot of that stuff is just pumped on in reruns and people just can pick it up and watch it. But, you know, but with Lost, it's like, okay, you watch this episode. Okay, what's going to happen next week? Okay, you know, we're going to wait and see. And, you know, it was actually a forward-moving story. And I mean, you know, yeah, there's. I'm sure there's other stuff that maybe did that and but maybe it was something else about lost that kind of drew people in in a different way maybe it was the kind of viral marketing aspect that added to it you know the where people could kind of discuss what they think was going to happen um but but yeah i remember that being like a really interesting time where it's like oh cool like we actually get a story you know um which then again you know and, and bringing up another thing we talked about like you know buffy had been doing that so it's like you know again maybe lost didn't start that but maybe it was the first mainstream show to do that i was gonna say i feel like lost was a big crossover because there was always like the water cooler discussion show right the show everybody knew everybody watched and they would be like can you believe what x and y said last night on whatever it was like that like friends kind of had seinfeld like the those kind of water cooler shows right palatable Mm -hmm. wide audience i mean doing 
new innovative things for the comedies that they were and all that stuff. But I think Lost was the first kind of, again, prestige, long form narrative that wasn't just what's Joey and Chandler getting up to in this Friends episode. It was like, what the fuck is going on? I think that that crossover, because it's a weird sci-fi drama. And I think it's kind of the first crossover that became real popular as like this episodic what what is happening I mean, I mean i remember that just i was in middle school and high school but i still got the sense that like everybody was watching that show and everybody was discussing that show and confused mm-hmm. i think i think <laughs> yeah. the, the strongest part of that was when uh, dane cook had one of his specials where he was talking about lost and he hates lost because i have <laughs> no new answers and 42 new questions at the end of every episode yeah. it's just like for it to be yeah, that that widespread uh, an appeal for a show for that joke to work like i I feel like it it was that grand crossover in a way that nothing because it's a genre show genre shows weren't really they were niche they had like appeal is that post firefly or contemporary with firefly Uh, i think i think so because i i feel like yeah i think firefly was during I remember like watching Buffy with my blockbuster friends and that was sort of like right out of college. That would have been probably around um, like 2001, 2002, 2003, like sometime in that time. And I remember, I don't think we watched Firefly together or maybe we did and I ended up watching it around that time. But I remember it hit out and canceled around that time. Whereas I think Lost, like I remember playing catch up a little bit, at least I was watching it on like the DVDs and then eventually streaming when it was kind of like, you know, again, streaming was kind of starting to pick up where it's like, Hey, you could just watch this show online after it airs. Um, yeah. So I think that, yeah. And that was again, sort of towards around the, you know, 2009, 2010, like the, the late part of that decade. So yeah, I think Firefly had already come and gone. I think even maybe even Buffy and Angel were, were done by that time. So, so again, yeah, there were the shows that were doing that, but they were more like cult favorites, not like, yeah, part of the mainstream where everyone was talking about it. You know, and yeah, yeah, like, even for me, like that... someone had to introduce me to Buffy, you know, it wasn't like I found Buffy myself. It was like, here's this great show, you know. And Buffy always felt like UA, like young adult, like aimed at that CW kind of, this is not the sexy CW, this is predating that, but it's like that kind of tween <laughs> generation. Yeah. Whereas Lost felt very like adult, like adults yeah. were watching it. How did we get on Lost? Oh, <laughs> kind of crossover. Oh yeah, it's like talk about like the yeah serial television where it's like oh this actually progresses and you know the characters grow up and you know have new problems and right. um, but yeah so that was one of the yeah so back to the original point that was one of the things I thought was was really great you know is that yeah we kind of follow these characters you know, as Aang is growing up, as he's kind of coming to terms with his destiny, um, you know, as, as everybody's like leveling up, you know, it's like you get, um, you know, Sokka, who's kind of like the goofball at the beginning, but he actually like becomes a badass, you know, and I remember bringing this from this very like niche, almost misogynist, well, not even almost just like this misogynistic, like I have to protect the women in the tribe who are defenseless to this feminist like he he be, he understands 
the the power of women and their role in this world and it's just like this i mean Sokka is definitely the character i identify the most with and it when it started i i did but i was irritated that i identified with him the most because he <laughs> he's always hungry he's, he's that kind of that that caricature that archetype right the goofy sidekick mm-hmm. and but he, he like you said he evolved so much further than that yeah well i i was telling someone about this too like how i noticed how you know I think a lot of his problem at the beginning is, you know, all the, the, you know, the men who are warriors. And I mean, you know, and that's the way it was in the tribe, you know, not to say that women couldn't be warriors in that tribe, in the tribe he was living in, like the, the men who were the warriors, they all left to go fight. And then he's the oldest boy there. And he's most of who he's left with are old, old ladies and children. And, you know, he's got to train them. So there's, there's no one there to push him to become a better warrior, you know, right. because like, you know, he, he has no one to spar with who's going to kick his ass and make him get better. Like he's training little kids. So of course he's better than them. And it, it wasn't until he had to go hang out with all these benders that it's like, okay, I've got to step up my game. Like I've got to, you know, and, and, you know, and he struggles with that, you know, there's some point where he's just like, yeah, like I don't have any kind of special thing I can do. You guys are all benders, you know? And, but like it kind of pushes him to kind of find his thing and to, to be better. And, you know, and he does have, you know, he does have skills like he was trained. It was just, you know, when you never get to put them to the test, you know, they don't get to like, you know, you don't get to sharpen them. So, and I, you know, so I liked seeing that happening because, you know, yeah, at the beginning he was, he was my least favorite character, but by the end you're just like, yeah, he's one of the crew. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's all of them, you know. And that's the thing, in a, in a worse show, in a more childish show, he would have stayed the same power level and the same comic relief and had no depth yeah. and no growth or, for him to or be getting worse like fucking right. Merkel. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that 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 joke played itself out pretty quickly but yeah it, it's one of those and that's the thing like i love a good boomerang joke and and there are some really good boomerang jokes in it like like suicide squad needs to take s- some notice and like actually study how to do a boomerang joke and actually show a fucking boomerang but like and it's just like, Boomerang, you always come back to me. Like, I, I love those little moments. And that's the thing. You kind of, it becomes this kind of tension breaker the way a good comic relief character should. I mean, because they end up doing some really serious heavy duty stuff. But it's also mm-hmm. like that character is not just fulfilling that one function in the show. Katara is already pretty skilled and become like, is once as she's teaching ang she's also getting better and then she's butting heads with the other water tribe and their kind of misogynistic kind of view of women and whether they should bend or not and that that was like everybody's got this journey and i was i was really like there is there's a there is love tension i wasn't going to say sexual tension because these are children and the whole time they're children um but there is like this this tension and this relationship crush tension right crush tension that's that's a good <laughs> middle school esque but it, it never what i never got the sense that the show was all about that and i i, I think that was a wise focus it, i mean it's this bigger thing and trying to have a budding hormones as you're coming of age and also having to face down the worst guy in the universe like I think they they played with that really well, and I, they didn't make it overly 
to one side about any of it. Like it, it wasn't overly childish. It wasn't overly adult with how they portrayed that relationship. I, I think they, they found a good balance with that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's one of the things too. I always hear people criticizing like when a movie or a TV show will have any sort of like love interest element to it or attraction, you know, whatever you want to call it. And it's like, like, that's just life. Like if you have a bunch of people together, like someone's going to be attracted to someone at some point, you know, and, and you're right. Yeah. Like you can have that, but without it being the focus, but I feel like it shouldn't just be a rule that's just like, well, we can't have any, you know, any romantic relationships because those are dumb and that's Hollywood. And, you know, it's, you know, it's like, it's like, that's, that's, that's the thing, you know, that's what happens, you know? And I mean, it could, it could be unrequited. It could be one person, you know, it could be a triangle, whatever, but, but there's going to be something. You're not going to have like a bunch of people together. And it's just like, everyone's just straight up platonic for three years in a row. I think you can grow to that point, you know, where it's like, okay, well, you know, yeah, Aang, this is the first girl he's seen. Of course he's going to have a crush on her, you know, and he kind of stumbles with that and he makes some, ba- you know, bad choices, but it's like, he's also a kid, number one. Number two, he, like she's, you know, the first girl. Like, I, like, I don't know if there were, any, I forget if there were any other girls at the, the, the air temple when he was training. I think there were I mean, a few, maybe but they were, were But they're all monks, so I'm sure right. that, you know, yeah. Um, you know, so it's like, you know, of course, like, that's going to be there, you know. And, and I think it would have been, like, bad writing to just be like, we're going to have no relationships with any of these people. They're all just friends, and that's all they ever want. They never consider otherwise. And, they, you know, you know, when, you know if, if Katara's going to go swimming, he's not at all going to look at her and be like, whoa, you know, like, you know, we're just leaving that out. It's like, that's, that's just unrealistic. You know? What I butt up against with, like, when it feels like they forced a relationship into a narrative where it feels mm-hmm. tacked on, it's like, it it's not developed in like any Joey sense. and Rachel. Yeah. They ran out of combinations. Right? That that's the thing. Like mm-hmm. what do we do now? Do we yeah. get another series regular on? No, we're not gonna do that. Let's try this. I and that's the thing. Like that's kind of I was gonna say that's the point where the writing on that show kind of goes off the rails, but Friends has problems throughout. But I I really like the place that they end up with that storyline. I think it started from a place where they kind of tried to force this and even they're trying to force it and it doesn't really work. And I think they kind of land in a place where it's like they can't be together because they're too good of friends, which is a pun and awful. But I I think there's really a genuine friendship there. Again, pun. But like it, it, I, Mm -hmm. I, I kind of liked where that ended up. Again, on the, on first viewing, it's like, why is this a thing? Why are we writing in this direction? I like it when a relationship is like well thought out and if it only ends up being a fling or if it only ends up being like unrequited or stuff like I like those little nuances, but when, when (laughs) it's like fucking the, the Hobbit, right? There's no romance in that children's book. They made three, three hour movies and they forced some interspecies elf and dreamy dwarf making eyes at each other and that's a like there's no reason for it It has no place in the whole fucking movie like or the whole series like that that's the kind of shit that i get into where it's like and i i i'm always it's always refreshing when you see characters that can be platonic you know i think that's something that that hollywood is bad at is like if there's a lead woman and a lead man that's the relationship It, it in that it 
it's getting better at deviating from that, but not much better. And that that's kind of where I, I, I it's refreshing for me when it's a story that's not about them getting together, you know, that that's mm-hmm. even in a roundabout way, like them getting together around the sci-fi explosion shit, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, I, I can now weigh, weigh in on the uh, Pabu versus Momo debate. Um, <laughs> now that I've seen some Korra and we can talk about Korra. I, I mean, there's so much of Avatar. It's, it's hard to talk about it, it being such a short show. I mean, there's 66 episodes, but it's, it's so, so much happens. Um, but I was going to say, like, I thought I like, I, I really like Momo and I really like Momo and Appa's back and forth. I really don't like Naga all that much. I think she's just a puppy and there's not really any depth to what she, she's more like, I don't know. Appa saves their shit so much cause he can swoop right. in. He's like the deus ex Appa, right? Like, cause he can fly in, but like there was so much of a motivation between Momo and Appa with like hunger, like their stomachs. They're like, it is stomachs. And I appreciate that. And that's also a Soka thing. Like I like that. But with I, I like Pabu because he he's a little little stinker like a little cat like you I think you were mm-hmm. saying that he's more cat like than Momo yeah. ever was. But I think as a duo, like as a, a a furry creature duo, I like Momo and Appa better. Granted, I haven't finished Korra yet, but I really like that dynamic a lot, and. Uh, I, I like the kind of idea that Momo might be the reincarnated spirit of uh, Aang's first teacher, or best teacher, his mentor. I like that a lot. Oh, and, oh okay. Yeah, master. Cool. I, I don't think I've ever heard that theory. Is that uh, Monkeyazzo? I think so. I, I'm really bad with the names. Me too, was, usually. Yeah, I, it definitely, yeah. It, it helped the second time watching it where it's like, okay, remember these names, you know, when people, you know, because that always happened. What about with so-and-so? It's like, which, which one's that? Is that the earth bender? And it's one of those <laughs> things where like, I, I remember the names that I like saying, like bossing say is so satisfying to say. Yeah. And so much happens there. They spend so much time there so that you hear it over and they, they reference it a lot like that. I think there's season one storylines that reference Iroh's siege right. of bossing yeah. say. Iroh's awesome. Like I love Iroh so much. And it's kind of like he also starts from that place of like he's this this uncle character kind of starts as this caricature, right? The the lazy but wise, not even lazy, but just like passive but wise uncle to this kind of hot headed like that's that's kung fu movie one hundred and one, right? Like that that setup. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just he just consistently is the sweetest, most wholesome character in the whole show, and it, it just that how it develops and kind of in the bossing say episode, that's like the, what is it? Like an anthology episode where he's mourning the loss of his son. It just breaks your heart. Like mm-hmm. that, that show. Yeah. It, it's really good at that, you know? And it, it, it's definitely a mature show for being able to balance that, you know, that's one of my favorite episodes is that, that yeah. three piece one where it's, it's just, and then when Appa gets kidnapped and that whole that whole thing and it's yeah. it's all visual storytelling you know there's no real dialogue in it like that's a really skillful way to tell that story 
And I love the way Zuko I, I develops too. Like I, I had watched the honest trailer that they did for <laughs> Avatar. <laughs> and Zuko, I mean, obviously his his catchphrase is gotta find the Avatar, like he says it a million times, and he kind of becomes one note. And I was kind of privy to the fact that he ends up coming around because you can't avoid all of the memes that show like his progression right. and stuff. And so I, I knew he was gonna come around and I was looking forward to that. But when he does, man, it, it's great. And it, it's such a great characterization of kind of that teenage angst of like, why is everything I'm doing wrong? I don't know how to, to, to shift gears this dramatically. And he, at that point, he doesn't have Iroh as this guiding light. And it's, it's all the more dramatic for that. Like he, he's actually having to, to deal with these situations on his own without this guiding light that he always took for granted. Like that, that characterization is really, really strong. And that's the thing. Like, I don't think there's any weak character development for really anybody except the cabbage guy. Like, I love the cabbage guy. <laughs> I love that the cabbage guy is referenced in the fucking, in uh, Korra, which is 80 years later. Like, <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, I, all, I knew that character, but I didn't know that character was from Airbender. So I would see, oh, like, okay. the cosplay and, like, I was okay what is this cabbages thing um mm -hmm. but that's the thing every time it came back is like this this is exactly when i needed it like it was really good at balancing it when when we were watching the uh that scene where appa gets abducted like i feel like at some point there was a comment made about like wanting ang to go all anakin on the skin the sand people and that was oh, definitely like you know, it's one literally what it was. Like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he almost does like he he gets angry angry that's what he did gets it's bad um <laughs> no, and that's the thing i feel like there were stakes right i don't know that i remember a whole lot of people actually dying or i mean the people die and like but it's off screen or they get burned or they and that's the thing they always like knock them mm -hmm. off the ship rather than having them go down with the ship like there's there's like kind of some kid elements where you don't see blood soaked carcasses or anything but like right. it's definitely felt like the stakes were were high especially in that that last the last episode is one of the finest episodes of television ever it's such a satisfying pay yeah. it, it might be the best ending to a series maybe ever i mean just totally satisfying and gratifying and it it didn't feel over long it didn't feel overly stylized like it, it just was such a great I don't know, like, and that's the thing, like, it was another one of those where as we were coming to the end of the season, I realized, as Aang realized, that, like, the eclipse is tomorrow. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we need to get our ass in gear and we need to figure out how to do this. And you kind of get into the, epi like, episodic describing the format rather than the storytelling style, but, like, the idea that they're just going from thing to thing and eventually they'll get to the, the, the big boss at the end. But then it's like, oh, it's not, it's happening now. It, it's, it's, it's really good for that. You know, just a surprising mirroring the viewer's experience through the character in a way that like is talking about the format and how many episodes are left. Like it's a very, very sophisticated thing to pull off without seeming mm -hmm. too meta or too self-referential, you know? Yeah. That's the thing. There's an earnestness to it. Like it's, 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 there's that one episode that's super meta, which I know you love where they go to see the fucking play about themselves. That's a yep. great episode. And it's, it's at the right time and it spends enough time with it. And it, 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 but it's not overly, 
it's not Deadpool about it. You know, like it, it, mm-hmm. it's, it, it doesn't make that the show. It says, okay, we're going to have this one little make fun of ourselves, reference ourselves thing. And it, it's really beautifully done. I, I really like that episode. I like how much Toph loves the character who's playing her, the actor who's exactly. playing her. <laughs> yeah. She's the only one who doesn't have a problem with her portrayal because it's like, who else? That makes total sense. She, she has such a self-awareness of herself and no ego about it that is so the opposite of everybody else in the group. And then you kind of re- remember that like this is in the Fire Nation, right? So like Aang's the bad guy in the play. <laughs> And I like that kind of the gender bending thing. And it gets a little shit about shitty about Aang not wanting to be played by a girl, but it's also like, it's referencing like this Peter Pan esque, like that state, the Mm -hmm. stage productions of Peter Pan always have a female lead. And it's this, this really interesting commentary on the stage play of Peter Pan may not be a reference that a kid watching this is going to get. I totally got it, but it, it, also seeing Soka kind of be a, a little star fuckery about the guy playing him, but also feeding him lines and that kind of like self-eating snake of self-reference. It, it, it's a show that knows what it was, you know? It takes a while to get to what it is. And I think it, it, the, the pacing... I mean, the first part of the first season is a little... You have to get into it. I think that's the thing. It doesn't yeah. start crash bang awesome it gradually builds you into this world and that's kind of how i and that's the thing like i think at the end of the first season because the first season is what the Shyamalan movie covers and you realize it's like Mm. they did that in two or it wasn't even two hours like they did that and they did none of it in a satisfying way right bending felt clunky and slow and just yeah, I watched the trailer for it again recently. I was like, that, that, why did anybody see that, let alone think it was good enough to send to the theaters? Because, I mean, that, that's the thing. Bending, it, it has the, kind, the form, the kata forms, and it, like, it's definitely, it, it's a show that makes you want to wave your arms a lot. It really is. And, and say, yeah. like, that it captured that thing as a kid where you're like, see a kung fu movie, you want to do kung fu. You see a sword fighting movie, you want to hit things with sticks like a sword fighter. So it, it definitely captures that that thing. And it's like you the elements are responding to you getting in touch with the chi of the moment, the movements. So they're gradually, but they always feel powerful, even on a small scale. You know, like bending is a big deal. And the, the movie never really got that going. You know, it didn't feel like a threat or a or, or versatile weapon, you know. I was so satisfied when uh, Soka got his meteorite sword. Oh, that was so cool. I was like, yeah. "What are they, is he going to make the sword out of the meteor? Because that's, that's exactly what I would want him to do. <laughs> that was one episode. Like, you, you kind of got the, it would, it built quietly, right? That Soka felt inadequate not being a bender and feeling like he was never at the level of the people that they were fighting. He would, he was always brave, and he was always like putting himself in harm's way, right? But he never felt like he, he was always punching above his weight. And like that slowly built. And then he got one episode of like gratification. I would have liked that. That I really like that episode a lot. I think it, it, it would have been cool to have that more of an arc, more than just one episode, maybe do two or three. Mm-hmm. But that's like at the beginning of the episode, he feels depressed. At the end of the episode, he's this master swordsman. So that 
that's maybe the one place where the pacing was a little off. But I fucking loved that episode because it was so mm-hmm. so gratifying because that's that's what I wanted for Sokka was to be on a level in his own right. And he got a cool meteorite sword. Like it was really cool. Yeah. yeah. It's a good show, man. That that third season really plugs along. Like the pacing kicks up in the latter half of it, and it's just because they they they're building up to the eclipse and the invasion, and then that doesn't go anywhere. I think it also is really a, a, a smart show and a versatile show to kind of they've been building up the eclipse as this big thing, and then they abandon it halfway through the third season. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, well, where where do we go? He's going to have to fight him at full power. And that that really characterizes going into that last episode, like the scope of how powerful Ozai will be when he faces him. And also like the fact that he got smacked in the back and took away his avatar state oh, and like yeah. how brutal and gruesome that was and the, the continuity of showing the scar every time he had his robe off. Like that, that was really, mm-hmm. really well done, I thought. Yeah, for me, what got what got me too was I don't think they show it much, just once, but that he has the scars on the bottom of his feet too. So it's not just like you know, oh yeah, you got hit in the back, you have a wound on your back. That shit went through his body and out his feet. Like (laughs) that, that fucked him up. (laughs) Yeah, that was lightning, right? He got yeah, yeah, lit up with lightning. I just keep thinking about like when Zuko is trying to finally like be a good guy and they're at the air temple that's built upside down i was like just what a cool element what a cool way to stage that and also like the fact that toff is like totally ready to accept him and then comes to to engage with him and he attacks her and it's just like he can't do anything right like it's so well characterizes the the history of those characters and that's the thing toff has been around the zuko ang conflict the least right so she's not intimately involved with it and then you keep seeing these glimpses of zuko as they go on like where katara is uh gonna heal him with her holy water essentially from the the spring of the water spirit and just kind of like you keep seeing these chances for zuko to do the right thing and sometimes he doesn't sometimes he does and none of the the choices in that episode that i was talking about are deliberately him trying to be mean it's just he's like an an exposed nerve he's just responding to stimuli without any kind of like calmness or balance and that that's his whole character is unbalanced you know yeah and that's what's great too like part of that is like you know i feel like so much of there's a big part of his life that was kind of shaped by his mother and then he has like his sister and his father who are telling him stuff new and what he should be doing and then his uncle is trying to pull in the other direction. And it's like he never really had choices that were his own. And it wasn't until he was on his own that he could really kind of find himself and find his own choices. Right. And I feel like that's part of it, too, is like, you know, how, how, how do I do this without someone telling me what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, whether it's, you know, for good or bad, you know, like, and that's the thing, you know, like, even though, you know, his uncle was trying to have him do the right thing, he, he couldn't do that and have it be his own choice until he kind of made it on his own. And I think that was, that was a big part of that through kind of stumbling through all that and just being like, okay, like that, this may not be the right choice right now, but it's, but it's my choice. It's my action, you know, of him finding himself. And that's, that's something I've always seen, you know, as I, as I've gotten older that, you know, a lot of, 
teenagers go through where they, when they rebel against their parents and they think that, well, if I do the opposite of what my parents are telling me to do, that's me being myself. And it's like, no, that's you just doing the opposite of what your parents are telling you to do. Like some of the stuff that your parents say you're, you're never going to do again. Some of the stuff your parents say you're going to be like, oh yeah, that does make sense. Okay. You know, like, you know, you kind of have to be removed from that. So you're not just either doing what your parents are telling you to do or the opposite of what parents are telling you to do, you know? And so it was, it was great to kind of see that where, um, you know, I feel like probably maybe a lot of kids don't get that chance, you know, where it's like, okay, I can remove myself from, from this completely. And even, even the good advice is still someone else's advice, you know, so I need to just make my own mistake, fumble through it, you know, and, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of what I've, what I've found, like, you know, for, for my own life is like, I, you know, I'd rather make my own mistakes and have someone telling me like, this isn't a good idea. You shouldn't do it. And then not do it and be like, well, I didn't learn anything from that, you know? Yeah. And I like, I like how he, he does embrace that though, where he's, he's kind of fucking up, but he, he doesn't just say like, you know, I kept waiting for him to be like, fuck it. I'm going to be evil again. And, and it's like, no, he just, he keeps trying. He's like, I've committed to this, like whatever it takes, like, I'm going to show you guys that I'm, that I'm different, you know? And, and, you know, I thought that was really great. Like it really showed that he had changed at his core, you know, and it wasn't just like, you know, oh, I'm good now. So I, I get a reward for that. You know, it's like, no, like, I can't make another choice other than what I'm doing, because this is actually who I am. and This is what's right. Yeah, just the fact that the whole show, it sets up this other generation of like these, these core benders, one from each element, who's like, you know, okay, like, we're kind of ushering in this new world, like, you know, fuck the old fire lord, fuck this guy, fuck that guy, whatever. It's like, okay, you know, we're we're kind of, you know, teaming up. We're the, this powerhouse team of, you know, all four benders and one non-bender. And that's kind of like the, you know, I thought that was, that was really cool. Um, I don't know at what point I saw that happening. Not right away, I'll admit it. But like, you know, because Zuko is such a good villain at first. But then you kind of see like, Oh, I bet like this is, you know, as you start assembling the other benders and right. become the core characters, you know, it's like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. These are going to be like the, you know, the head benders in charge, you know. And they've been, they, they had planted the seed for his redemption kind of as early as the first time the blue demon shows up, right? Like first time yeah. he, he breaks, I guess I hang out of prison or something. I can't remember what the fir- oh, yeah. first, but like from, from the second that you realize that the blue demon is, Zuko like you you kind of get this sense of like there's that ambiguity he's putting up this front and he's doing what his dad told him to do but that's not his identity that's not what who he's that underneath and that's what Iroh sees in him is constantly trying to nurture out of him you know that that's and that's like you said the I'm so interested in like I like that Korra is a time jump it's a really far time jump. I'm, I, and I think the, the, the calls for a season four of Avatar are interesting, but I'm, I really like the idea of like them setting up the central city, right? Like the all people's government, that whole, mm-hmm. I guess, democratic body or oligarchy, I guess, is what it ends up being. And kind of Aang's interactions with the, the uh, bloodbender who ends up having the kid who's, uh, are kids who are Amon and mm-hmm. the other councilman guy. Oh, and right, yeah. It, that, that, the more I see in flashbacks of that, the more I kind of want that story, kind of that in, interstitial, maybe even a, just a season or something, kind of like, and it's great, like, 
they do a lot of storytelling in Korra. I just kind of have moved on to Korra, though. There's so much to talk about with Avatar. But like, I, I knew about the technology jump, which I think is one of the most jarring things. Is it, mm. it moves from this kind of prehistory kind of Chinese myth, like monkey kingdom type story, right? Action adventure thing into this like roaring 20s, Mm-hmm. Ur- urban environment with it, like an industrial complex and like gangs and stuff like it's a very a very different genre of show and i i, and it, I mean there's pro pro bending is a thing which is really unique and it, i think I, it, it's a little unsettling with the tech but once you get into it i think i mean it's the same storytelling the same kind of skill i mean i'm only so far into season two and season two is a, a very different season but just really interesting that jump and kind of <laughs> from the second that you meet Korra she's a very different avatar you know <laughs> like yeah. I'm the avatar and you've got to deal with it and she uses fire more more than she does water like it, it it's just it's such a different and I, I think it's it's a great great shift you know in the dynamic of that character um for her to be a teenager, I think she starts at like 16 and goes to 17 and 18 as the seasons go on. So like this different level of angst and frustration and kind of how she has parents who are around. She, it's not that she lost a hundred years and every one she knows is dead. Like she has this base and it deals with those kind of inner family politics in a way. And, it it's just a very different show and i i i like it a lot you know it, it's it has the same kind of i don't know if it's the same tone but it, it feels very similar you know once you kind of get used to the set dressing of okay there's cars and radio and tv yeah. is a thing like they they discover and implement what movers i guess they call them movers yep <laughs> with uh, Bo Lin playing this kind of like proto Hollywood star playing the nook of the North, essentially. It's just like, it. it's, I, we don't have to talk about Korra too much, but like, did you, I guess, when did Korra come out? It wasn't like right after it would have been, when did you see Korra? It was a lot more recent. It was definitely here in Colorado. Like I, I, I borrowed the, the box set. And so I, yeah, I definitely found, yeah, like, like you said, it, the, the technology was jarring. I think I also felt like at first when I was watching it, like, well, well, where are they going to go? I mean, they had this epic battle that was a hundred years in the making in the first Avatar. So like, what is this going to do? And it took me a while to kind of see like, okay, yeah, like they've, they've got plans. Like this wasn't just, okay, Avatar was successful. Do another one with a girl. You know, it was like, oh, we, we have other levels we could take this mythology to. Um, so it took me a while to get into it, you know, to kind of see that and kind of say like, okay, yeah, this is this is good. And I think um, it even took me till like, you know, season two, season three, where I, before I really started binging it a lot harder and was really in, as engaged. Um, gotcha. But yeah, and I think, yeah, I think that is part of it is like the world is just so like, I kind of, I, I, I appreciated not having technology. So once it was there, it's just like, there's technology all around me. Like I want to break from this, you know? Like, right. But, I think, um, I, I think it was such an interesting choice. And I think it also like the inter city politics of government and gangs and benders mm-hmm. and non-benders is such a 
far-flung concept from the bad guy shoots fire, we have to beat him. You know, like the, right. the, the, the level of that, the, the complexity of the forces at work in Korra from a very early point in the first season are very interesting. I kind of think they burned him on too quick. Like that villain makes so much sense. And that conflict is so nuanced and so twisted and so relevant to the time we're living in right now, right? Like this whole, like uh, people not being treated fairly and the protests that result from that and how the, the kind of mob mentality or fear of a mob mentality twists both sides of the conflict. Like it's so pertinent and it's so specific and well pointed that it's such a more sophisticated conflict and story to be told. And I think they, they burn through it pretty quick in the first season. I was kind of disappointed that like Iman has a good point. Like it's that those are the best villains. The ones that like take a good point and go too far with it. Like that, that was, it was just really fascinating to kind of to like, again, we know who Ozai is. He's the big bad. We're going to eventually get to him and you can have all these new. And I mean, bossing say has like, it's a different kind of city. Right. But it also has like thought police and a, a, a secret, like a KGB, like there's a bit like very specific kind of references. And I think that, that like, that might've been what they did with Amon was bossing say storylines that like the, the seeds had been planted at that point. Like, Oh, okay. If we have another season to really delve into a city specific storyline, like that's how we address it. Good shows, man. I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. definitely come around to, to the, the fandom. Yeah. I'm, I'll own it. I'm sending Pabu gifs to people. And like when, when the, uh, one of the, the twins is dating Bolin and is going to marry him, and dresses him in the, the ceremonial robes. And then Pabu is wearing the same robe. It just like looks very distinguished next to him. Like I, that's the thing. Like I think Momo was more like front and center. Like when there was a visual gag with him, he was right in the center of the frame, but Pabu, you kind of have to, to search for. He's kind of like this sight mm-hmm. gag in the background. And it's always like, Oh shit, look what Pabu's doing. Like I, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. I think that's that's it's it's a more adult, in quotation marks. I I keep getting in trouble by for using adult to describe things when I don't know what to use to describe them. But just more nuanced, more more specific, more complicated. And I think I, I think I just kind of put my finger on it too. Is that yeah, like Pabu does act more like an animal. Whereas Momo, I think, acts almost more, too much like a person. And again, right. so it seems that more, yeah, that more childish of like, oh yeah, this animal is kind of like a person and has thoughts. And so, yeah, it seems like a little more un, unrealistic and, you know, um, except for you get that one moment where I forget, I forget who it is, it's like talking to him and you just kind of see it from his perspective and you get that kind of like, murmur, 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 you know, like that, that was probably one of my favorite moments with him. But yeah, with Pabu, it's kind of like, yeah, this is, this is what animals are like. They have a personality, but it's not a human personality, you know? Right. And, and, and that's the thing is like, I definitely see like my pet in Pabu and it's just like, yeah, like where it's, you know, this kind of like little, little sidekick, little buddy that's kind of all around you, but it's not like, okay, I'm going to fly off and have my own adventures for a while. And like, 
be the driving force for the search for Appa or like Appa's escape is totally motivated by or facilitated by Momo's intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to find a tactful way to transition into a discussion of Van Halen, which is so polar there, in a there different is <laughs> there is no... Van Halen. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> transition landed. No, I don't, I don't want to move away from Avatar too far. There's just yeah. so much to yeah, talk I mean, about. Like it's a, it's a net yeah. good, but it's it's just such a yeah. rich story you know well that's the thing is like i you know for a while i never had anyone to talk avatar about because it was just like well it was the yeah like i said the the friends who i had to see it with um but i think that was kind of like was a while before i watched the, the show and then i moved out here and then kind of forgot about you know and then when it came back around again you know it was kind of like oh yeah this was the thing that i can watch again so then but then i watched it my wife then it's like we both just watched it. Like, you know, how much do you talk about something? I mean, you know, there were little discussions popped up, but you know, you're kind of like, you're there. It's like, yeah, did you see that? Like, yeah, I'm right here. I'm watching the same <laughs> thing, you know, like kind of back and forth, you know, like, right. and uh, you know, and luckily I think enough time had passed that I, I wasn't sort of projecting stuff because I'd forgot like certain things were coming. So it wasn't just like, Oh, watch, watch this. This is going to be great. You know, it was just kind of like, Oh yeah, I forgot how great that was. Cool. So kind of experiencing it again. Right. So, so it was just kind of cool to hear, you know, to hear you kind of talk about it and be like, you know, to know what you're talking about be like, yeah, that's cool. Like he's, you know, uh, you know, cause I feel like I do that a lot with things I'm excited about where it's like, let me tell you why this thing is exciting and, <laughs> and you should do it, you know? So it's kind of just cool to be like, Oh cool. Like Joel actually enjoyed this. Cool. Like, let me, let me hear him talk about it. And that's the thing. Like, there as i was being courted by it like watching it and slowly being worn down from my shitty elitism about it like anytime <laughs> ang is in a disguise it's so good like that that silliness i can't remember the name of the first mm-hmm. one with like the the hay uh oh, hair yeah. and beard yeah. mm-hmm. it's just a very mm-hmm. specific long n- name and it's a silly thing to say and it's great he just totally owns the character yeah. tyne and i have been saying uh, flamio hotman to each other all the time. Like, I just love that he's like this old man in a little kid's body saying these outdated things. This like, Hotman, Hotman. We've been saying it to the cat, Rodney, Hotman. <laughs> just like <laughs> this little, little, little catchphrases. I mean, the, the cabbage dude is great. And yeah. I mean, the, the pro wrestling episode is fucking incredible. <laughs> like, like the, the idea that that's a proto pro bending but it's it's these wrestling personalities throwing earthbending at each other in this circus environment, and it's it's so perfect. And the the big dude who talks about himself, the boulder, I guess, is yeah. Mick Foley, Mankind, or Cactus Jack, or whichever wrestling personality you know him as. Like he's the dude that the Undertaker threw off the top of the cage and almost died. Like big wrestler, voiced oh, okay. that character. Yeah. And it is just, it was, it was really on the nose. And as a wrestling fan, I was like, okay, this, this, this gets me where I live. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think it was around that episode. It's like, okay, you need to stop being shitty about this and just enjoy it. Cause it's, it's, it's a generally good show. Like it's, it's, I think a lot of it stemmed from like not wanting to be forced into watching something that that's part of where it stemmed from. It's like, 
I, I have a lot of like taking on new fandom anxiety. Like I think that's definitely mm-hmm. a thing I have where I, <laughs> I had a lot of stigmatized fandoms growing up and it's like, let's, let's not, let's insulate from all of the ones that are a little too far down the rabbit hole. I can still be functional <laughs> and social mm-hmm. if I keep this barrier up. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm watching all of those things and running a, a role-playing game. So I don't know what fuck the fuck happened. That was my biggest holdout <laughs> for the longest time was like, I'm not doing anything D and D adjacent. And here I am part of three games, two of which that are debunked and one of which I'm running. <laughs> so you're just like Zuko. You gotta just, you gotta have a break <laughs> from everything and come to things on your own way. And not because your, your uncle's telling you, not because everyone's telling you, you should do this thing. It's great. You're going to, you know, it's like, I'm going to avoid doing this until I have, you know, like you said, enough time in between, like, okay, now I'll give it a shot. You, you brought that around so cleanly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To, to, to pivot so, shamelessly. One, one last oh, yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing is once you're finished with Korra, now you'll also have to check out Dragon Prince. I, I, I know. Think, I was talking to Tyna about yeah. that. Same showrunners. And I was like, now I have to watch that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like, I think it's like one of the, I think, I don't think it was the creator of Avatar, but it's one of the main writers of Avatar gotcha. created Dragon Prince. I think that's how it works, but it's still, there's still a connection. Isn't like there you'll get it right away. The same voice actor plays a very yeah, similar Sokka. Sokka does like, yeah. Doesn't he have a boomerang? In one of the episodes, there's like a reference to him like having a boomerang and seeing like, this feels right. Maybe, yes. I, think I saw that so, in the, I think the I didn't honest catch it. Yeah. I think I didn't catch it because I hadn't seen Avatar in so long. So I forgot. That. I didn't realize it was the same voice actor. But yeah, I, th- I think now that I remember seeing that, oh, look, they made this joke. And I was like, oh, okay. That's why that was a moment. Okay. So now. Well, real quick, maybe we'll get to the second topic. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to figure out kind of the, the, the progression of the, the airbender story. And it's very much like wandering samurai, like Ronin type thing where it's comes to a village, has this interaction with the authority and ends up saving the day or not. And I think that that's kind of the, and it's also like hero's journey and like learning skills and having different masters and stuff. Like it it felt more, I don't know, traditional sound seems like it's the wrong genre. It's kind of like traveling adventure, I guess. I, I don't know. I feel like that I have a very firm grasp of the more complicated one in Korra. It's like this is inner city politics, you know, like mm-hmm. interacting with social justice and rights and people abusing power. Like that, I don't know if it's just easier to characterize that because that's more of the world I'm living in rather than mm-hmm. I'm, I'm far farther away from the imaginative play. It, it's very early Dragon Ball Z-ish, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that's also where I drew it in my head. It's like, okay, this dude throws fireballs. Those dudes throw fireballs. So I kind of aligned Avatar with the anime right. genre. Van Halen. <laughs> I love this. I, I'm enjoying this so much. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no segues. There, there's no links. Eddie Van Halen has passed away, and I, I don't, I don't know how big a Van Halen fan you, you were or have been or, or anything. I know, like, I, I, silence. I call of... myself. <laughs> well, no, I'm trying to think of how to say because it's like I don't want to sort of come across like, I, like 
I wouldn't call myself a fan, but I mean, I, I like their stuff. I knew it from the radio. Um, I mean, I never, I never owned a Van Halen album, um, which I guess makes sense. I mean, I was a drummer growing up, so of course I gravitated towards Rush, you know, whereas like, you know, at one point, one of the times, uh, one of the bands I was in, like our guitarist, his favorite guitarist was, was Van Halen. That was his favorite band, you know? So, you know, I think that, that does have a lot to do with it. And I think it, this is a funny thing that made me think that, that sort of carries through I've noticed into um, classical musicians as well. And I, I, I noticed this and I talk to people about this where it's like, you know, when you ask them like, Oh, what's your, you know, what's your favorite piece of music? And they'll tell you, and it's usually a piece that has a solo for their instrument. You know, like gotcha. if you like, I remember doing that, like asking like a trumpet player, what's your favorite Mahler symphony? It's like always Mahler five, because that's the one with the trumpet solo, the big trumpet solo, you know, and it's like, but what about what else is going on besides your own instrument? You know, so it's like, you know, and again, I'm of that too. My favorite band is because of the drummer I like the most. But then again, I've also kind of delved into the other instrument, you know, uh, Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson and, and what they, you know, add to the band too. It's not just I'm sitting there only listening to the drum. But, but yeah, there is that sort of connection. Like when you connect with your instrument, that's kind of what pulls you in. So I think that's part of it is like, you know, because I, you know, it's not that I dislike Van Halen or I don't think they're good, but just because, you know, the guitar was the central part of that and I wasn't a guitarist, I wasn't as drawn to it. But I mean, I definitely, yeah, like I like a lot of their songs. I, I definitely appreciate, you know, what, what they did. You know, I, I, I will say I, I am a bigger fan of um, David Lee Roth than Sammy Hagar. Whether or not that's controversial, that's, that's where I stand. Um <laughs> You know, I, I, I feel like the, the, the David Lee Roth stuff is just so much more fun and just like, like it's <laughs> like a driven. party, whereas like with, yeah, yeah like with, with Sammy Hagar, it's kind of like, I feel like I'm supposed to be like, I don't know what, the, I don't want to say like learning something or feeling something. I, <laughs> I, I love that, but it, I, maybe it's, it's such an interesting he's trying thing to, to say I'm interested in. about the dude who wrote, I can't drive 55. <laughs> like... <laughs> That's so funny. But I'm thinking of like, you know, like the... No, I like know. The, the right now, you yeah. know, it's like David Lee yeah. Roth never would have done that song, right. you know? Right, like, right, right. You know? <laughs> like if da David Lee Roth's version of that song would have been like last night where I was banging some chick, not exactly. right now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I, I grew up listening to Van Halen. It's one of my dad's favorite bands. So obviously, like mm -hmm. almost genetically, I was pre predisposed to loving Van Halen. Um, yeah. and it's one of those things where it's, it, it was always on, like, listen to it stuff that I, I still don't know lyrics to songs cause I have like sense memories of them. So I have like pre almost prenatal understanding of how the lyrics sound that don't match up with words that make any sense. It's a lot of my classic rock or metal influences or like fandom stuff, like being a fan of them, like comes from that kind of prenatal ish state. I don't know if that's the right term, um, but it's one of those things where it's like always listen to them and it was always like greatest hits or like, and I never really had the knowledge about, okay, at this point, it's no longer Diamond Dave. It's now Sammy Hagar and how that the tumult between those two band, their two versions of the band and Eddie's frustrations with Diamond Dave and then with uh, Mike Angelo who was the bass player and did a lot of the harmonies and helped with songwriting and like the different iterations of the band. So it almost becomes Shakespearean. Like when you get into these bands and you 
look at all the album art and you're like you can tell like certain tensions from the photo ops and like just tracing a bit like i do that with aerosmith all the time you can kind of tell like this is the one where they're super drugged out this is the one where they're about to fall the fuck apart this is where they're clean but not really this is like you can kind of trace that through the discography so we, we had a greatest hits of theirs and we had cassettes of like i think 08 1028 or whatever that one is it's like the oh, second one that two yeah um so we had that and i, I that's the joke right is it be like oh u812 like oh is that what it is like, nice yeah <laughs> see this, <laughs> i was so worried i was gonna be like what about van halen you're like fucking hate them <laughs> that, that was my worry so I'm, I'm, we're already in such a great place like you you know the album titles and all that stuff so it was one of those i was i had gotten i think my dad had got a record player and we had started buying vinyl again and we we ended up unpacking a box and he had like Van Halen one and Van Halen two in these great fucking condition. I ended up finding 1984 and this like really crisp clean record and listening that side like cover side to side all the way through for the first time and hearing songs I'd never heard with Eddie doing things I've never heard a guitar do playing with the harmonics and the into- inner inner tonalities of where your fingers not pl- pressing the strings down to the frets, but like holding them and having these microtones and just everything new I was hearing was just so innovative and so crazy. And I mean, I've seen, I saw Van Halen play. One of my first concerts was in Pepsi center and we sat high right to the, of the stage. So it was all bass so it was like muddy and gross and wasn't the best sound quality, but it was like David Lee Roth is right there. Eddie Van Halen is right there. Even though it was like 400 yards away and these tiny specks dancing around and diamond Dave was still doing kicks and th- swinging the mic and doing the acrobatic <laughs> stuff. Like this was high school, I guess end of high school. So he, like he was still moving. He was old, but he was still moving. The voice was still there. And that's that concert is where I realized how good a drummer Alex Van Halen is because you I mean on the records he falls into the unless it's like hot for teacher he does that double bass right. thing and he's doing like the yeah. the the motorcycle and you kind of you 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 appreciate the skill in that it's kind of it seems like a one trick pony thing but when you see him give Eddie a break because Eddie will go back and have a drink and like relax after playing like eruption or something he's a Alex is a machine and he doesn't have a big kit I think he only plays three toms he's got like a real classic setup and it's yeah. so close he was playing this 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 the solo and this kind of go this progression of rhythms and i don't think his fucking head moved once he's just dead uh. set and like his head would not move his shoulders were so set he's just little moves all up the pl- and just playing really intricate like crazy shit he's like a machine so dialed in as good on drums as Eddie is on guitar. I came away from that concert with just such a supreme respect for that man's musicianship. And I was talking to my dad. We went fishing this last weekend and we were talking about Van Halen. It was one of those things where Eddie had died and I wanted to talk to my dad about it, but I didn't want to be the one to tell him. I didn't want to call and be the one to like, hey, this dude that we really respected and thought was cool had died. But he, and he, he ended up calling me at the end of the week. He's like, I was sick of waiting to hear from you about this. I wanted to talk to you about it. It's like, I didn't want to be the one to break it to you. It was, it was really sweet kind of moment. Um, 
sweet and morbid moment. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, he, he was kind of doing some research or like re, they were playing all kinds of stuff and like old interviews and stuff. And they were saying that Alex and Eddie both were like Nash or uh, state piano champions, like classical piano when they were little, like going from eight to 12, oh, wow. they entered these, mm-hmm. these competitions and just play like, so the mu- musicality of both of those guys from a very young age is just really impressive. And like, again, like the, there are drummers like Peard that, that fucking stand out. And then there's guys like, uh, like not Mutt Lang. Who's the guy from ACDC. I can't remember his name, but like our Paul, uh, yeah. Phil Rudd, it's a Rudd. Um, but he, he, they just dial in and they can do the one thing that they do like a metronome and they control the rhythm. I mean, that's the thing. Angus can only do his thing if the rhythm section is so dialed in behind what he's doing. Different band, Masters of Slow Rock, like crazy good drummer in, in ACDC. But like as I was growing up, I was learning about, okay, the guitar sounds so good on a Van Halen record because everything else is so perfectly dialed in. Like there, there's n- nobody's firing on, on a lower amount of uh, cylinders in that band. And it, so I, we'd seen them and then I saw Sammy Hagar tour. And that was a really, if you ever want to feel good about like your, your body image and how you, how you're existing in, a, in your life is go see a Sammy Hagar concert. You, you, <laughs> these aging kind of uh, soft bikers <laughs> just kind of a sea of the past their prime wearing leather uh, vests that they shouldn't be wearing anymore. Just not, not to be judgmental, but you just, you feel a little bit better about how svelte you are in comparison. But it was great, like, because Sammy can play the Van Hagar stuff. And I mean, that's a, a clear distinction with a judgment attached to it when he was the lead singer he can play all that stuff because he's got writing credits on it so i i got to see essentially sammy hagar's van halen playing those songs okay but i mean when they got to the solo section dudes didn't even try they're like we're not we're not gonna try and do eddie's solo because we're not that the last time it was the first time van halen ever played red rocks and it was like two year two or three years ago we went up and seen him and it was just really sad because David Lee Roth had gotten to this point where he didn't really have the voice anymore. He's not agile enough to do the shit that he did. So he just kept talking. And I mean, like in, in that kind of silver tongued assholery way that he always did over the records, like in, and that it wasn't cute anymore. And it's like, you're also talking over the greatest living guitar player of all time. Like, I don't know. I it was just it was really disappointing. It was great to see Eddie play at Red Rocks for the first time and hear the band, but Diamond Dave yeah. really kind of lost his luster for me after that show. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a band that I've like seen, even though I haven't been around for like any of the the, the landmarks of their career. Like all of their music kind of predates me being into it so it, it's just kind of a weird. Still have this roller coaster peaks and valleys of being their fan and having appreciation for them and stuff like it, it's Eddie's just an incredible guitarist. He, he's always going to be up there in the, in, in the Pantheon, right? Like the Rushmore of, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be 
Hendrix and him and I, I, I don't know, take your pick. There, there's probably Jimmy Page for me. And I, Clapton always is in that conversation, but I, 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 I like Clapton, but he's kind of like, okay, you're a blues guitarist and you're white. Mm. What, 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 why? Like, I appreciate the stuff that he does musically, but he's like, I'm just, I'm just alienating half the world right now. <laughs> Talking shit about <laughs> Eric Clapton. Well, I mean, for me, Clapton, it, it, it's always been more about him as like a, I guess, a singer songwriter. I don't know if that's yeah. kind of like, Lady, you know, for like, sure. Yeah. Like I, I, I like his songs, but I don't necessarily like look at him as this guitarist, this guitar God, which I mean, you know, maybe I just haven't heard enough of his guitar centered stuff, but right. you know, like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think of him as like, yeah. Like if you, yeah. Like when you were listing guitarists and you mentioned Clapton, I was like, Oh yeah, that's right. Like, right. you know, as a, I mean, Prince is, is always, it's always undersold how great a guitarist he was. And that, that Clapton had been asked in an interview. I think he was like, the interviewer was like, how does it feel to be the greatest guitar player of all time? And Clapton's like, I don't know. You ask Prince. He he's the one. <laughs> and you, you kind of forget that. I mean, say what you will about Purple Rain as as a movie, but the dude is playing his ass off in it. And just the Purple Rain solo is 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 this huge, earth shattering solo. And it, it's just I, I I don't know. Like Eddie, and that's the thing. Eddie was really technically proficient and understood from a mute. I mean, he and he never read music he always played by ear and he was a studio musician like that was his background before he was in a band i mean he gave michael jackson the beat it solo for free he recorded that in an afternoon and you forget that that that's where that solo is like oh i that that guitar sounds really familiar it's because it's fucking van halen it's such an iconic sound i know that he has a really unique sound and they call it the brown sound It, it has this kind of like forward tonal kind of the clon chasers i don't know if you know about the clon stomp box the the guitar pedal it's a really fat mid-tone that kind of surges through everything and muddies things up in 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 a really satisfying way that's the thing i know mxr sold me the phaser the phase 90 like their most iconic pedal on account of eddie van halen using it in everything for any kind of aspiring musician who plays guitar. I mean, Van Halen has to be in the conversation. You might not like them from a a metal standpoint, but like the man did things with a guitar that nobody's ever done. Like the pound cake is a, is a song that he uses a fucking drill that resonates the, Mm -hmm. the, the strings. And it just, it, it does some crazy thing, just an iconic. And that's the, it's another one of those things. It's like a clarity thing, like through the distortion and the phasers and the, chorus pedals and the delay and stuff like there's this clarity that comes through when he solos that's just it's so unique and you can you can tell just tonally that it's him playing regardless of whatever you've heard of the song before it's crazy to have seen him twice and one of them just being an earth-shattering concert that broke my eardrums for three days afterwards and it just like <laughs> it was one of those great shows where you just listen to their discography nonstop afterwards because you're just so hyped and wanting to like recapture that moment and then to see him at red rocks are arguably the best venue ever designed and it just be this utter disappointment <laughs> you know not because of him but yeah. just because he, he was touring with 
a fucking guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so did they have? I, I, I always knew they obviously they had two different singers, but then so did they have two different bassists? So, because you said at one point after a certain point, the bassist. So they had three singers. They recorded one whole album with a dude from another band, and kind of everybody, nobody really can agree on whether Van Hagar is better than Van Halen. Like that, that's, but everybody thinks that both of those is better than the album they recorded with the other guy. Okay. So after that point, and they would go back to Dave and they'd go back to Sammy with different interstitial stuff. But at one point, Eddie was in rehab and they were going to be honored at the rock and roll hall of fame. And Alex decided not to go. David Lee Roth didn't go. But Sammy Hagar went, and Mike, Michael Anthony went, the, the bassist. So at that point, they said, fuck you. And Eddie was like, I'm not, I'm not working with that guy ever again. And so they, Eddie's son, Wolfgang Van Halen, greatest fucking name of all time, got to. <laughs> played, played bass for them. So when I saw them tour, it was Wolfie playing bass. And Wolfgang's actually the... Eddie did like a signature series of guitars. It's called the Wolfgang and they're really badass and expensive and prohibitively hard to play because they're that expensive. But (laughs) yeah, so I, I never saw them with Mike Anthony and he was, he's a great like backup vocalist and kind of was really good at the harmonies, but Wolfgang is it's in his blood. Like he's a really good musician too. (laughs) As far as the, the, the Hagar versus David Lee Roth thing, I'm, I'm so it depends on my mood. Like I really like Diamond Dave as a, and I'm a, I call him Diamond Dave because that's how I think of him. He's like this rhinestone, sex crazed wild man, flipping things over and doing karate kicks and flips and shit and like just mm-hmm. this proto front man, like this this just huge energy. But that's the thing. Like they with. Hagar, they had more number one hits. They sold more albums. They were more commercially successful than they had ever been. And it was because, like, Sammy brought his fans and Eddie brought an insanely better songwriting style. Because that's the thing. The biggest hit Sammy had before that was I Can't Drive 55, which is, like, almost sophomoric in its, it, its simplicity. It's just very, very bare bones, like... And they just together, they crafted really great songs. Like, and like you said, I mean, they make you feel something. Like, why, why can't this be love is, is a heartbreaking song. Just real, like, mm-hmm. it's very breakup fodder, you know, or like yeah. pining after somebody fodder. Like, I mean, that's the stuff that crossed over and just, it was hit after hit for a while with that, that mixture, you know. You could almost, you almost can't tell track to track unless it's like a very specific david like running with the devil where it goes into that kind of like lower chord progression and it's david lee roth just talking over it in that way that he does like ease the seat back yeah. thing and or hot for teacher yeah. where he's like <laughs> cat calling essentially yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's so it's so old man grows but it's a, like it, it has an energy. It has a confidence. Like he, he's this this dude. He has this this aura. But like when you get into like the harmonies and the, the songs, like they're pretty similar quality of singers, you know. And that that's 
I, when I get the greatest hits, I'm not mad when it goes from David Lee Roth to Sammy Hagar, you know? Hmm. Since you never owned an album, you probably never saw them live. Wouldn't have been motivated to. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've seen very, very few live shows in my life. And they've, they've always been like, I mean, most of them are, yeah, are like the core, my cornerstone bands. Like I've seen Rush. I can't remember if it's three or four times. I've seen Dream Theater and I've seen Tool. And that's like, that's <laughs> mostly it for rock shows. Like, you know, I was never, if I had a chance, I would have seen Alice in Chains live. But yeah, I wasn't like that. Dude, that I oh, and I've seen, Prim- and seen Primus live. Okay. You have such an interesting taste in music. <laughs> I don't think if I, when I met you, I would have ever thought Primus and Tool are in this man's repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's definitely like, I think like, you know, Rush was sort of that gateway into, into prog rock, you know, and not that I, I love all of prog rock. Cause there's definitely a lot of it. Like when I'm talking, when I'll talk to people who are huge prog rock fans, it's like, Oh, do you know this band, this band? I'm like, no. Like kind of like, you know, and, and that's how I am with a lot of music. You know, I kind of become obsessive about stuff. So it's like, okay, I love Rush. Okay, I'm going to delve into all their stuff. Okay, what else is like Rush? Well, okay, there's Dream Theater and, you know, yeah. And then like in those other bands where it's like, okay, but now I want to own everything by that one band and get to know their entire catalog, you know. But also, and, and actually this, this kind of reminds me too, one of the points I thought of earlier, I think also why... Um, why I also wasn't a huge fan of, of like Van Halen, like because of Eddie Van Halen. And, and this kind of carries through to a lot of my musical tastes. Um, like, first of all, I'm like, I'm not a huge fan of, of solos in general. Gotcha. Um, and, and that also carries through to, I think, why I'm not a huge fan of jazz either. I was just um, about to say, I, I feel like that one hand washes the other in that respect where I, I really liked guitar solos for so being in jazz when I got to solo, I was like, fuck yeah. Like this is my time to be Angus Young on saxophone, <laughs> essentially. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't know if it's maybe also because of my composer's brain, like part of what I appreciate about music is how it's crafted and put together. And this also goes into, you know, storytelling and stuff like that. So so, you know, again, you know, for me, like, you know, the idea of improvisation. Not that I hate all of it, but it's like, well, when you get kind of too many cooks in the kitchen, there, there's sort of no one unified idea of like, what is this song? Now, now, granted, I know that, you know, with, with, with rock songs, I mean, they're, they're pop songs, there's a formula usually. It's like, you know, here's where the guitar solo goes. But I'm also not a huge fan of, of music that's for the sake of like showing off. Um, and that's why there are a <laughs> lot of drummers. type that, thing. Right, Yeah. <laughs> And that's why there are a lot of drummers I don't like that people love because it's like, this guy can play the fastest drum roll. This guy can play the fastest double bass. Like, like, I don't care. Like this isn't Guinness book of world records. This is music, you know, like how, how is that being applied? Like, is that, is, is his speed or, or volume being applied in a musical way? Or is it just to show off and say, look how fast I can play, look how high I can play, you know? And, and, and that's part of it too, is like my own, um, you know, lack of experience of, of seeing lots of good, you know, I guess this is more talk about jazz, like lots of good jazz solos, you know, you know, and a lot of my experience with jazz has been in school, 
So it's people right. who are studying jazz, learning jazz, you know, and it's like, okay, everybody's going to get a turn so they can learn how to do right. a solo. And right, right, right. not everybody knows how to solo. And a lot of these are actual classical musicians who wanted to join jazz band, you know. So, you know, so it's, it's that's kind of been my experience with that. So, and again, it's it's not a criticism of jazz music. It's, it's my sort of the way I kind of have experienced it, you know, uh, like my my own aesthetic so so some of that carries over into you know like like that's one of the things with like you know the the hair bands in the 80s you know every song you know like i said every song had a guitar solo and it's like okay here's the part where there's the solo like whatever you know and that's why like i think one one of the things that i really enjoy is you know in smells like teen spirit you know the guitar solo is just the the melody of the verses like He's just playing the melody on guitar. And, and, and I love that because it's, it's a change in texture, but he's right. not showing off. It's something that fits in with what everything else is doing. It's material that we've already heard, but in a different way. So it's interesting for that reason, you know. And again, not to say that every solo is, is awful and I hate all of them, but it's, it's not sort of my gateway into something. Part of my own ignorance is I've never sort of really sat down with Van Halen and sort of analyzed their songwriting you know right but i mean that's sort of the thing that's in your face about it is okay you've got the voice which is yeah like from what i've heard either you know hagar or you know david lee roth and then it's the guitar work you know and it's right. like okay and it, and, it, and it's 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 cool and that's great i dig that and again i i appreciate it and you know it is impressive and and i do love eruption and i think maybe that's different because it's like this standalone thing as opposed to like, we were in the middle of a song that was about something, but we had to take a break to do a guitar solo. Right. Now back to the song. It was like, that was the, the purpose of that. So, so, you know, eruption is great and that works really well. Like you, you, you know what you're in for, you know? Yeah. Um, um, eruption so crazy, especially live. Yeah. That, oh shit. <laughs> it's one of those things, because eruption is on the greatest hits disc we had, but it's not before the song that it is on in its original form i think it originally was before you really got me now which is a right. kinks that's what cover. It, like on the radio that's what i would hear right. yeah but on the greatest hits it was before running with the devil okay. so it's it goes to that kind of huge crescendo and then it goes like oh, it nice. goes into that like and it's such a verse. So when they're playing it live, they can throw it in anywhere before anything. Right. And it so well lends itself. Like it's an instrumental, you know, like there are solo elements to it, but I, I more interpret it as an instrumental. Right. Yeah. Now, do you, do you have the, the tab of that? Cause I remember at one point in my life, I don't know if I still have it, but I remember seeing like coming across in like a guitar magazine, like the, you know, the, the tab for that. I remember being like, oh, cool, you know, and it's like, I'll, I'll never be able to play this, but it's kind of cool to look at and analyze. It's um, one of those things where so I think if you I don't have it, one, if I ever happen to come across it, I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> I, I think I saw one tab of a Van Halen song and it, it was like, there's no way, there's no way in a million years, <laughs> just because there's like notations of things that I don't even know what would look like on a piece of sheet music, like, just the hammer-ons and the slides and because he starts it down here he's on he, he's hammering on and off the whole length of the fucking mm. it, it's incredible it's it's just right it, doing like all those arpeggios yeah yeah and that's the thing like it's really musically sound like the 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 dude the dude knew music theory 
by ear. Like that, I mean, he didn't know how to write it, but he, he understood what he was, what he was doing. You know, you get a lot of sense with some people, like they'll feel it out, right? You get a, a feel for it, but it, it's, it's more of an innate thing rather than a, a, a practiced, learned thing. Talking about solos, like I always, I really like solos that undulate and become something else. That's something I really liked about good jazz bands is that good rhythm sections will see where a soloist is going and interpret it like into a style shift. Like it'll go from swing into bossa nova or something like it'll, it'll see the, the cleverness and the joking. That's the thing. Like jazz solos always struck me as funny. Like they would always, they would reference things and kind of either subvert your expectations or play things and put two things together that you wouldn't really associate. And then if the rhythm section is really good and it's a good soloist, they can transform the progression of the song into something else and then come back. It's something that really is interesting and awesome to be a part of. It's something that's really interesting and awesome to see live, but it's something that doesn't necessarily translate well on a record. Um, Mm -hmm. I think of the, the Led Zeppelin live sessions. Anytime Led Zeppelin does live, it's like a different band. I had this, I have these recordings from like their BBC sessions. Anytime they would go into like dazed and confused live, it goes into like a Chuck Berry song and then a Elvis song in the solo section. And then it resolves itself into dazed and confused. It's one of those things where like that kind of thing sometimes is built in and sometimes it's organic where they would hear what Jimmy was doing and then the band would shift with him. I always thought of it as it, like a, a solo has the potential to shift the whole band in this direction mm. rather than this component of a constructed piece of music. It's this opportunity for the, the music to, to evolve. So that, that's kind of where like that developed over time. And it was something that I learned when I was soloing as a saxophonist and kind of like really liking when you really are dialed in with a rhythm section and you have a band that's like understands each other and kind of will listen to each other like that. That's the, the potential for a solo rather than the, the hair metal thing of like, okay, chorus or uh, verse, chorus, verse, solo, chorus, verse, you know, like it gets into that ABA right. style. Like it's just a component every, every single time. So it's just the potential for improvisation to be this kind of almost like hitting the switch track on, on a, a railroad just kind of like can move the train in a different direction and then come back. But I can understand from a composing standpoint, it's like, no, this is the track I wrote. Stay on the track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like I said, there are, there are solos I have heard that I, that I like, and they are kind of few and far between, um, I mean, not to say that every time there's a solo, it like ruins a song for me. Right. I think another thing that I've noticed too, and this is more of like, again, having to do with like rock bands and, and live performances, but like, you know, how, you know, when they record an album and, you know, and, and Rush is guilty of this too, which, you know, like sometimes you don't notice, sometimes it's super noticeable. There's only three of them. So if, if Alex is doing a solo, in the studio, they can lay down the guitar track and then he solos over it. Right. But live, it's just drums, bass, and guitar solo. And like, you know, which again, depending on, you know, how how busy the bass part is and the drum part, like maybe we don't need the guitar part, you know. 
but there are times where it like all of a sudden it sounds super thin, you know, um, gotcha. you know, and, and it's not just them, it's anyone where that's the case, you know, and, you know, I know that's why, you know, like it's advantageous if you have two guitarists, okay, now we can have the rhythm and then the lead doing all this stuff. Um, right. you know, that's one like, like Alice in Chains is a good example of that where, whenever there's a solo, it doesn't take away from the song because they have, you know, like there can be two guitarists. I think Lane Staley didn't play all of the time, but he could. So if Jerry Cantrell was doing a solo, Lane Staley could do the rhythm stuff. So you still had, you know, drums, bass, and rhythm, and then guitar on top of that, you know. One of my favorite uh, band configurations was uh, Judas Priest. And they had, <laughs> they nev- they had two guitarists. But on every album, it said both of them were lead. Nobody <laughs> owned being a rhythm guitarist. It's like, this is the band so metal that there's no rhythm guitarist. That, that definitely seems like a, a spinal tap thing, you know? Right, yeah, we're, exactly. We're all lead guitarists, yep. That's the thing. I mean, I, I love Judas Priest, and I think, like, K.K. Downing is the one. I can't remember the other guitarist, but, like, they're incredible guitarists. And I feel like... They put that up as like, maybe it'll be this guy soloing. Maybe it'll be this guy. You'll have to figure out which one it is. But it is, it's definitely like a spinal tap. <laughs> so yeah, this, I mean, this whole year has been a shit show of, of important people dying. And, you know, I, yeah, I guess it's sad to, you know, cause yeah, we did, you know, we lost my inspiration, Neil Peart a few months back. I think that was still in 2020, right? Yeah. So now, you know, and now Ben Halen's gone. So it's just kind of like, okay, I guess just fuck music, you know, like, you right. know, it's, it's. You it's know. one of those things. I mean, where, like, you know, not. I was lucky enough to see Rush live at Pepsi Center with. I mean, they they can't tour again. Like, there's how do you? And that's the thing. Like, both Rush and Van Halen are bands where, if you lose the guy they lost, there's mm-hmm. where's the band? You can't have a band right. called Van Halen that doesn't involve Eddie Van Halen. You can't have right rush without neil that it's it's just and that's like acdc was lucky that they found brian johnson after bon scott died but that's a a one in a million thing like that how how often are you able to transition i mean i guess it's not one in a million because like leonard skinner still goes out like there's these bands that have lost huge swaths i mean the eagles still go without what is it henley's no it's glenn fry that's dead now but they've lost like I don't know, but there's like replaceable guys in bands, yeah. you know? And it, I think it, it's, yes, is like that too, where they've gone through like multiple, like I think Genesis is like that. Yeah. Like yeah. multiple, you know, changes. And it's just like, well, as long as we have these people, it's still the same band, you know, right. and, uh, King Crimson too. I think, I think they have different lineups all the time or had, you know, yeah. but well, no, like, I mean, well, I think with Van Halen, it's like, okay. Yeah. As long as we have Van Halen, we can change singers. We can change bass players, you know, like, you know, and I mean, maybe they could even get away with changing the drummer, even though he is, you know, the other Van Halen, you know, right. but like, yeah, like you, you know, once you lose that core member, you know, that was actually the things too, when I did see Primus live, they didn't have their original drummer. So that was, that was kind of disappointing because it was like, I think they had switched at some point or I don't know what the deal was exactly, but you know, that's not the only reason I got into Primus, but that was like, you know, it would be one thing. It's like, Oh yeah, there's this really good bass player and you know, the songs are really silly, but it's like, also oh, they have a sick drummer, but it's like, Oh yeah, but that's not the drummer you're going to see live. Okay. Right. That's the thing. Like I, I mean, I saw queen obviously without Freddie Mercury, right? Like I think it was Adam. Yeah. Uh, Levine 
Lampert. Oh, that's right. No, it's Lampert. Because it, Levine is the Maroon 5 guy. Lampert is, had his own. He was like the American Idol guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's one of those things like, how do you see Queen without Freddie Mercury? And you'd like, I mean, Brian May is a huge part of that band. Like, he is very productive mm-hmm. of the legacy of that band. He's an incredible guitarist, incredible musician. And mm-hmm. the drummer, I can't remember his name, but he's a real big part of the vocals. But it was like, you're going to see the spirit of that band, I guess. I, I saw it was my, our friend Zeke. It's a really good tribute band. <laughs> Essentially. And that's the thing. Like, they put, they put uh, Freddie's uh, footage from, what is it, Live Aid, where he's talking to oh, the yeah. crowd. And they played that. And it was heartbreaking. Like, it was like he was in the room. It was like this, this, this tri- and it's a different thing. It's like a tribute to him. And you can get another guy to sing as high as he did. But, it, I mean, he's the ultimate showman. Like, you're never going to capture right. that guy again. I think that's, that's why they include that as a part of it. Is like, here's a little taste of what our, our friend that's gone. You know, right. it, it's, and I feel fortunate that I got to, and that's the thing. I, I am lucky enough to have been a fan of all these bands who are now aging and dying. And I got to see a lot of them live. You know, I, I got to see Journey like six times. I've seen Def Leppard, who I love and people hate. I, I used to love them. Back in the day, they were my favorite band. But now I can finally laugh at the joke. It, I know. <laughs> we we all know the joke. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, it, it's, it's a childish band with childish rhymes and childish lyrics. Yeah. But there's so much fun. But I wouldn't be fun. who I was if they weren't, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if they weren't my favorite band for however many years, you know, like. Yeah. And I, I mean, if I get to see them again, I will be very happy to see them again. And if they come, the two of us will have to go. Yeah, hell Death yeah. Leopard at Red Rocks. Absolutely. I saw them. They played with Sticks and they played with Journey. That's right. And I, I, I got to that see that billboard. Yeah, I saw both of those shows. But I, like, I've seen ZZ Top. I've seen all of these aged bands. And it, it's like, I'm so glad I got to see Eddie Van Halen. But it, it's when, when these artists die, it's like, man, I, I, I am like with Prince. I never got to see Prince. Zeke and I had an opportunity. Like we, we could have gone to see him. It would have been like $300 a ticket. And it's mm-hmm. at the po- time we were like, we can't afford that. We can't swing that. And then he died the next year. It's like, oh shit, we really should have. So it, it's one of those things where it's like, I would have liked to see Eddie again, but I'm glad I got to see him. It surprises me that you haven't seen all that many rock shows. I, I did think of another show I've gone to see that will, I think will also surprise you. No. I saw Corn live. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I remember your corn karaoke story. Oh, nice. <laughs> you might have to tell that on the podcast because I, I, I'm laughing, but the listeners don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> okay. So this was uh, during, during my undergrad. I lived in a, a small house. Uh, I went to University of Rhode Island, which uh, is sort of in a, a beach town. Um, and the apartment I lived in with a friend of mine was like walking distance from the beach. Um, so it's an we, East Coast know, beach. Calm there. down. I think it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I think, yeah, I lived with him, uh, was it junior, senior, and then our super senior year. Um, and, you know, we would have parties. And 
there was one party that we had and it was, oh, there was a Cumberland Farms that was like around the corner. It was like a block from where we lived. I'm pre-laughing so, on this story. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my friend, my roommate had a, um, you know, a stereo system that was also like a karaoke machine. So you could sort of like, you know, have your CDs playing. Remember what those are? <laughs> you have your CDs playing. Compact disc. It had a microphone. So yeah, so at one party I had gotten super drunk and I can't remember what song it was. So, but I remember like I went in there and it, when it came on, or maybe it wasn't playing a CD. The other thing my, my roommate had done was he had hooked his computer up to the, to the stereo. So his MP3 collection on his computer, he would make a playlist and that would play through. So I think Corn came on. Yeah, it was more accidental. And I ran into the living room, grabbed the microphone, jumped on the couch, and just started screaming along like into the microphone. And... My, uh, my my roommate comes in and I hadn't realized that like there was no one in the living room. Like I was there all by myself. Like it wasn't like a room full of people. I was all alone, just like screaming to court. He's like, he's like, dude, like, you know, calm down. And then some of our friends, like part of the reason there was no one in there is some of our friends had walked to Cumberland Farms to go get snacks. And they came back and they're like, dude, we could hear you at Cumberland Farms, like screaming at the speakers. And I can't remember if that's the night the cops actually came or not. They did come one time. <laughs> we did get a noise complaint. And I remember that's when you, when you, when you do the trick where as I'm talking, I'm going to breathe in so they can't smell my breath. Cause you're super smart when you're that, that drunk. And I was like, <laughs> and it's like somehow in my head, it's working. I'm talking while I'm breathing in. So they're not going to be able to smell the booze. In the it's the opposite with weed weed everybody knows and you know everybody knows with alcohol you think you could fool people <laughs> right yeah it's a very different sensibility <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's my that's my corn story but yeah like i did i did see them live and that was a really good show but that was another show where it didn't have the original drummer who i liked gotcha. um, so i think he had he was having like carpal tunnel su- surgery or something at the time so there was another drummer who played but they were still good. You know, again, like I, I do like the rest of the band. I'm not just so zeroed in on the drumming, but. That's the thing. That, that's the closest. I mean, I've seen Journey without the voice. I can't remember his name. Perry, Steve Perry, um, mm-hmm. who doesn't have the voice anymore. And they, they replaced him with the guy, Arnell, who is pitch perfect. Like they found him oh, nice. on YouTube. Yeah, he's from the Philippines. He was on YouTube just doing a cover with his band and they called him and he, it's the, the classic story of like, he thought it was a joke and hung up. It's like, is that actually you singing? He's like, yeah. It's like, we're going to fly you to LA. Come and come and sing for us real quick. And then they were like, do you want to be in journey with us? And he's been their singers ever since. And he's, he's pitch fucking perfect. He matches all the notes. So it, it's like, and it's the thing, like Journey's all these old guys and this one really young Filipino <laughs> lead singer who's got all this energy is this incredible performer and it's just like breathed new life into that band. So like whenever I've seen a band that's had to to recover from the loss of a singer or like plug in different pieces, it, it's been like better for it or a different kind of experience. It hasn't really diminished it. And now it's time for great ideas that go absolutely nowhere. So this, this, this was sort of an idea that I had a while ago. And again, this part of why this went nowhere is because I don't work for anyone or know anyone who can actually make anything of this. But it was sort of like, you know, like every now and then someone asks you the perfect question. 
So mm-hmm. I was out with some from friends of mine, my, my friends, Brian and Joe, and we were talking about, you know, we, we all love comics and movies and we were talking. And this was, like I said, it was years ago. And I think it was when DC was kind of starting to pick up their movies. But, you know, and they, I think it was probably around the time like Arrow and Flash had started. Um, but it was maybe just those two. And uh, like, you know, Batman versus Superman was out, but maybe not Justice League yet. I'm not sure. Um, so we were kind of talking about that. And, you know, um, uh, Brian and I, I think, are more Marvel fans. Joe's more of a DC fan, but we both kind of cross over. Like, we'll, we'll read whatever's good. That's kind of like the way, the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Joe had asked me, like, if you were in charge of DC, like, you know, what, what would you do? What would, like, in terms of, like, movies and TV, like, what would you do? And it just kind of, like, I was like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> and that was when, like, I, I was like, I would do an infinite crisis, or crisis on infinite earths because and again this is before they actually did it on the show i promise you i'm not just taking their idea and saying <laughs> oh, i thought of that i'm not trying to get royalties or anything but but that was sort of my idea like because with dc we've had so many different versions of the same characters and it's kind of like that's what, what you know why i think they did that original um crisis on multiple earths or crisis on infinite earths i think they were both of those i think it was multiple earths then infinite earths and then but where they had like this Superman that was the Superman from like the thirties or forties or whatever. But then they had the Superman that we know of and they had the two versions of the flash who met and all this other stuff. So that was sort of like my thing. And, and, you know, I, you know, always kind of loving this idea of like continuity and then bringing the idea of, okay, like instead of these being all separate stories, what if they're just part of this multiverse and, you know, they exist in all these different universes, but some event happened that brought them all together, you know. And, and again, this seems like, you know, stupid to talk about now because it already kind of happened on the TV shows. But again, if I was in charge of all of DC and could do whatever I want, you know, it would also be, you know, bringing, and again, uh, there were rumors about, I think, Michael Keaton being in the the, the Crisis on Infinite Earths that they did. Right. I forget if he was, I actually haven't seen it yet, so... Maybe I should watch it before I say all this, but, um, you know, the idea of bringing in all these characters who, who have played, uh, or, or, you know, these characters who have been played by different actors and actually making that kind of part of the canon, you know, not that it's just like, you know, a different actor, you know, if this was actually, the, you know, the Superman of this universe, this was the Superman of this universe. Also for me, like probably my favorite on-screen version of a lot of these characters were from smallville like right. that, that like i i love that show that was probably my favorite dc thing and you know maybe that's part of why I, like a lot of the newer dc stuff hasn't really clicked with me because it's like it's no smallville it's no smallville you know right. um you know i mean with over with marvel like i love spider-man but i mean you know, come on, the stuff they're doing with the Avengers, I'm not going to be like, oh, there's no way that's not as good as Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Like, you know, right. it's, it's, they're blowing up there, you know, whereas with, with Smallville, it was, it was straight for so many reasons. And not that I want him to just redo that, but like, you know, it's also disappointing. We never got to see him become Superman. I mean, there are comics and I have some of them. Um, so for me, that would be my thing is like, okay, if you, if you put me in charge of DC, okay, we're going to get on the phone. We're going to call as many of these actors and actresses as we can and bring them in. And also the idea of having actors play multiple roles. Like for example, Brandon Routh, 
how he's played Superman and the Atom on TV. So oh, you actually yeah, have to have yeah. him play both characters in green screen and he's facing each other, you know, like, and there are a ton of jokes about like, oh, you're a handsome guy, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But you kind of have to have them, you know, like the, the characters are different. So he has to play them as both characters. Um, and I know that in the, the, the version they did, they had him play um, Kingdom Come Superman, which my thought for that instead was that it would be like a digital, you know, you would do a CGI version of Christopher Reeve as kingdom come superman basically just sitting in his throne on the moon and just not participating in any of this so he's there and they kind of come across him but he's just like i'm out like my 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 world is done i don't care about any of your worlds so he's kind of referenced as being there and that's our version of kingdom come superman that's how we bring christopher reeves in but without having to um you know have do a lot with him the way you Um, you just sounded saying christopher like that's the way we bring christopher reeve in made me think of the the filibuster episode of parks and rec where exactly yeah <laughs> this is exactly what <laughs> i am pat not, oswald not to diminish it <laughs> in any way but i also like i like the idea of like cherry picking like voice actors too because conroy yeah. i still haven't seen the the on-screen portrayal of conroy as a batman but also like if we could see uh, uh mark hamill joker live action like that would be really cool and twisted. And you've outlined this to me before where it's like you get to cherry pick your favorite versions of it. And you, you have this cataclysmic ending where only your favorites remain. And that that's right. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. There's one, there's one earth after all this, it's all combined into one earth. So yeah, it's like some survive. And, and I think this even happens in the comics where you have multiple versions of the same, character still kind of existing on the same earth like i think they have like the old school yeah the jay garrick flash and the barry allen flash i think both survive right um you know again and that's something that's been done in the show you know but that's that's sort of another kind of thing to bring in um and then so that yeah so that part of it is kind of like me creating my my dream team like who would my dream team be um so and i'm i'm kind of torn because i would like i Again, Tom Welling is Superman and uh, Michael Rosenbaum is Lex Luthor. Like they, I know it's blasphemy to not say that Christopher Reeve is my favorite Superman, but but again, like you know, I spent so much more time with Tom Welling and, and watching him grow into being Superman, right. and never getting to see him be Superman. Like I right. want him to be Superman. He would be the Superman, you know. And I mean, I like the idea of also having him in you know, again, Michael Rosenbaum, he's my favorite Lex Luthor, like, like, like hands down. Like I don't even feel bad. So like, you know, Gene Hackman, I don't give a shit, you know, Kevin Spacey, <laughs> fuck Kevin Spacey anyway. But like, you know, I told you like who Michael I would have cast as Lex, right? No. I, I always thought if, if I was given the keys to the kingdom, like my Lex Luthor, I would cast the rock Dwayne Ooh. Johnson. I always liked the idea of like animated series lex was a big dude and a person of color Mm -hmm. and this this kind of titan of industry but it's also like somebody who's like batman in in like somebody who has done as much with their human potential as humanly possible Mm -hmm. and i always like the idea of like a a super jacked lex a big imposing kind of titan in the way that like the rock is right this charismatic powerful influential liked 
like that's how you get Lex Luthor as president. He did like right. the guy is not publicly what he is to Superman. Superman and him have this, right. this relationship and this kind of like frustrated relationship because of Lex's xenophobia, hating him as an alien and that like not ever being able to match up, right? As much as he can do, as much as he's been able to accomplish, there's this guy out there that is so much further along than he will ever be. So I, I always thought that would be a cool, like, casting if, if i was given the keys to the kingdom like that would be my first call it's like i know we're gonna let you be black adam we'll do that but this is an elseworlds and we'll, i want you to be lex right. luthor i think uh one of the things i would do too is i think my my batman would be the kid from gotham because honestly oh, like he him him and joker are my favorite things about that show and i know right. there's a lot of you know uh, well, first of all, I, I didn't finish Gotham yet. So I've heard that right. there's like another Joker, that the first guy wasn't the Joker. <laughs> I, I loved him as quote unquote, the Joker. Part of me wants, again, to have like that pair. But then part of me is also like, wouldn't it be fun to kind of pair him up with the Joker from a completely different universe? Like if you had that kid, but with, you know, and I know we couldn't do this, but but Heath Ledger's Joker. Right. Like that kid would have no idea what the fuck to do. You know, like- exactly. So, but so so that but then again, that's also how you make a badass Batman, someone who, as a child, has to face this psychopath who's already gone up against a fully grown Batman, and now you've got to rise up to to be as good as him. Um, so, but then you know that's that's also you know, I guess I guess having Heath Ledger as the Joker is just as unlikely as having me be in charge of DC. So, <laughs> so in that same world, in that same in that in that else world where I'm in charge of DC, Heath Ledger's still alive, so he can be the Joker. Mm-hmm. Um, but and yeah, I guess that's part of it is like how how realistic do you go with things, you know? And and what about all the people who don't want to take part in it? You know, if you're like, yeah, I want Michael Keaton as Batman, you know, to come in as that sort of old ass Batman, and he's like, no, I want nothing to do with this, you know. And I'm wondering if that's kind of why they were going to, I think they had Kevin Conroy play like the old Batman in right. Christ. I think that's what I heard. Yeah. So, so yeah. So things like that bringing in and, and I haven't thought out every little piece of it, but I know that those are sort of the, some of the big things. And, and again, it's all moot for both reasons. Once it's one, it's already been done Two, I'm not going to have that job, but um, you know, just the idea of throwing all those people on screen and, and, and how they have to interact. And again, since there's actors who have played multiple roles, kind of dealing with that and the, and the, the, the fun of that and the joke of that, um, you know, like kind of like how everyone said, you know, once we, this is kind of the opposite thing, but like, you know, once we got um, Robert Downey Jr. and Benedict Cumberbatch on screen together, it's like one of them has to say no shit Sherlock to the other one. Like that has to happen. And then it never happened. It was like, what the fuck? <laughs> or what is it? Excellent facial hair bros. <laughs> that, that one was oh, yeah. <laughs> from the direct from the panel. Yeah. I think, I think we've talked about what, what I would do. I definitely start with a, a really solid Superman movie and you could get Cavill back. I wouldn't have a problem, but I, I would go the green lantern origin route with him i would i would take him out off earth because that's the biggest problem with superman he's never met a force on earth that's even challenges him he's always managing like how much of the city am i destroying as i beat this thing and i eventually beat this thing and I, i i've always talked about the fact that it always seems like dc 
when they get into cosmic stuff, like there's little like Adam Strange and you've got Hawkman and you've got Martian Manhunter, but everything seems to come to a head with Earth. Like when when Darkseid shows up, when Steppenwolf and when Mongol and Mongal show up or Imperiex, it's always centered on Earth. Brainiac always comes to Earth. And I think they're, they have a very rich cosmos to play with and if they would just get superman off earth i think they could do a really good story where he he's thrown into situations where it's it's planetary level where he doesn't have to worry about the citizens of uh metropolis like he's actually having to manage things on a more macro scale and out of his depth and then the lantern core shows up and you basically do a Green Lantern storyline focused on Superman kind of leveling up, like having the, these bigger challenges and being kind of ferried through the universe by the Lantern Corps because they're the intergalactic space police. They understand kind of the different nuances and you kind of take the farm boy off the farm in essence, and you can show him this bigger world and you, you can have a, a guy gardener or even a, I had said Kilowog. I think it would be really cool to have just Kilowog show up in the way that he did does in, in the Ryan Reynolds green lantern where he's like, he's training him. He shows him the ropes. Like, I, I don't think there's a, right. it's a bad premise that that origin story for green lantern. I think it would be really well used. Like, use green lantern make him make like there's a huge like history and and a bunch of stories about the green lantern Corps. i mean you, tim you are a huge fan of that like you know all of the nuances of like the darkest night and the 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 uh white lanterns and that the dark lantern or black lanterns the whole that whole huge cosmic storyline and you could plant seeds for stuff like that with the the lantern core there you could kind of see a sinestro in the background and you could tease out this like dc multiverse or or cosmic universe and that that's the thing like you could have an adam strange i think that would be a really interesting that's a whole new direction with a really inch i mean i i'm gonna sing the praises of tom king's series to the end of time he's doing mr miracle which is a cosmic based character you kind of the new gods thing you could do that that's on apocalypse like that's where it's set but like if you start in space with a really power like i think superman's a great like foundation to build your franchise on i think man of steel is a i I like it as a superman movie it's got three endings it's all these things that it's not very superman feel good but i think it's it's not a wrong move to start your franchise there with a superman so if you start there and kind of build out and then you can come home to earth and then there's batman and that's kind of you could do that where you have a uh, batman versus superman where superman's been dealing with things on a cosmic level like an interplanetary level and then he's coming back and batman's concerned with gotham like if you don't have kind of like a, a world's finest partnership where they've worked together and they know each other and it's come to a head and gone wrong like it should have been told like that's a way to kind of have a shorthand where Superman's been dealing with interplanetary shit and Bruce has just been on earth. Like I think it's, that would be a really cool way to start is 
kind of send them out into space and then gradually bring them home. Because you got Hawkman out there, you've got Martian Manhunter. Like there's there's a lot of potential for doing shit in outer space before you you bring him home and and make superman frustrating again you know <laughs> that's the thing like everybody everybody's complaints about superman go away when he's off planet he's not overpowered and too perfect when he's fighting fucking zod you know but if you fight zod in space you don't have the problems that people had with man of steel with destroying everything and like that that that's kind of what i would do i would try to go cosmic then bring him home gradually. And that's the thing. Like, you get some space from Batman, which you've seen a million times, you know? And it, you don't have to... I mean, they made Aquaman a badass, but, like, there there was that, that kind of leap that you had to take. It's like, okay, they got Momoa. He's big and strong. Like, CGI is on point. Like, they, there was a lot of... You had to take multiple steps to, to legitimize that character. I, I think you go cosmic. Like, Hawkman and hot girl are these badasses thangarians i think they're called they're this warlike people like i think you, you you could go in different directions so you don't just churn out a new batman and a new joker story every year and a half it seems like you know yeah i enjoy those i'm i'm seeing them i'm eating them up like the the plebe i am but like that those were great oh. ideas that have gone nowhere <laughs> we solved it we fixed it as the segment says <laughs> <laughs> all right i think we've i'm gonna say uh ran another episode into the ground and here's tim with the final word it's too much pressure <laughs> we'll see you next time <laughs>